Hello and welcome to the Jewitches Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Jewitches.com. Every episode we dive into a new topic on Jewish witchcraft, magic, mysticism, folklore, and practice. And in our many episodes, we break down interesting topics in just about 10 minutes. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at Jewitches, Tumblr and Twitter at The Jewitches, and join us on Patreon. Links and citations are always available in the description. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. Today we have an absolutely wonderful guest. We have Hearthwitch. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. I am so excited for today's topic. When I knew I wanted to cover it, actually, when I knew I wanted to cover it years ago, I didn't even think I'd know someone as knowledgeable <laughs> and wonderful as you to come and do it with me. So I'm so excited to have you on yes. talking about it. Uh, Share a little bit about yourself, if you'd okay. like. Okay. So um, online, I go by Hearthwitch. You can find me on Instagram, um, a.hearth.witch. Um, you can also find me on TikTok, but it's the same thing, just no dots, a Hearthwitch. Um, and so I am a practitioner for German folk magic. So um, I grew up in America. Then I moved to Germany when I was in um, my youth, and then I've moved back, obviously, um, whenever I was, like, about high school age. Anyways, um, so kind of feeling like I'm in the liminal space between being an American and being a German, which is ironic because that's basically what being a folk practitioner in many ways is. It's about that liminal space of both the physical plane, spiritual plane, all that good stuff. Um, and so I spend most of my time basically doing just that um researching german folk magic i have a patreon um where i uh relay my research findings musings and whatnot about german folk magic a little bit also about germanic paganism um because the and i don't weary of using the word pagan because it's such a catch-all term so i really specifically mm -hmm. mean the pre-christian beliefs of europe prior to the christianization um and of the regions that would have affected modern day germany which would be germanic but also celtic gaulish um even roman um so yeah that is a little bit about me you have an amazing patreon and you also have an incredible <laughs> map of german grimoires oh my gosh yeah i'm yeah, a, I am a sucker for maps i it's like so good i can't get away from them i just yeah. i love visual aids and i find that i just try to do things that i think that i you know what would i have wanted when i started all this basically back in like 2015 like what would i want and i would want maps and i love it oh, i love making maps. them maps and <laughs> citations oh That's yeah where you want to yep Oh, citations. yeah. You need, uh, okay, without a citation, it just doesn't exist in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find Hearth's information in our description of this episode, as well as all of our citations as we're talking there you about. Go. Now, we haven't actually announced what this episode is. Do you want to do the honors? Oh, yeah. Today, we are going to be talking about Ostara and specifically about all the misconceptions around both, in my mind, the spirit and particularly the holiday, quote unquote. Yes, we are going to be talking all about <laughs> Ostara, Easter, even Ishtar at the end. I know we've had a lot of questions about that because it's kind of a, a linked topic for some, for some <laughs> A lot of reason. caveats. A lot of yeah. caveats. Oh, there always are. So we'll yeah. just get started. All the way back in 725 <laughs> AD, with a man named Bede. What a great name. 
Yeah, you know, what is it about that name, Bede? Like, I just, I, I, I can't help but think of a man with like beady little eyes, like Bede. It's just kind of, and then it kind I've of freaks me out a little drawings bit. Drawings of what he should look like, and oh um, yeah. So Bede wrote about a supposed European goddess named Ostre, mm. E O S T R E, and this was well after the Christianization of the area that he was working in. So at the time, did you hear that? Yeah, what was that? That was odd. I that thought was, it was the like dog. A... That was the oh, dog. Oh, I thought a car had come. <laughs> like a so big sorry. truck drove by or something. As That's a warning funny. for today's episode, we have another extra special guest in the studio <laughs> today, and it's a dog. So if you hear any strange noises, it's her. Um, <laughs> take it with a margarita rim of salt, which is a phrase I heard recently and think is funny. I really think that's funny. Um, so <laughs> Bede was a Northumbrian monk, and he wrote, Ostamunat has a name which is now translated to Paschal Month, which was once called after a goddess of theirs named Usta, in whose honor feasts were celebrated in that month. Now they designated that paschal season by her name, calling the joys of the new rite by the time-honored name of the old observance. And he's talking about April, just the month of April. Um, and that's it. The that's, whole month. That, that's it. They're talking about the month. It was called Ostamunat. And he said, well, it must be named after a goddess. And her name is Osta because Munat means month. Yeah. When, so that's I, her. When I when I read when I think about the dates that we're talking about with this event too, that so many people are, you know, contributing to Easter, I think it's so important to note like the layer with like folk religion and folk traditions and stuff that comes into play here because the Anglo Saxons were pretty much converted by the end of the sixth century, which would be basically the end of the five hundred CEs. And so we're talking about Bede coming there in seven twenty five CE. So give or take two or one hundred and twenty five, you know, years after after they had been done converting. And so it's like it's incredibly likely that they still had a lot of remnants of their pre-Christian traditions, but realistically they had officially converted to Christianity by the time that Bede had documented this. And so what we're seeing is probably not even necessarily something that Bede first-handedly observed, but something that he likely heard down the grapevine, if it if it's accurate and he's being truthful in what he's saying, that, you know, oh, hey, they say that they've had this festival that was in the month of April, and incidentally, it lines up with the, you know, festival that, that the Christians brought over in Christianization. And so I think that that's something interesting, too, is that even as, like, a primary resource, this is not really a primary account. It's more of somebody talking about what somebody told him of what happened 125 years ago. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, that's all that's said. There's nothing right. about who the goddess was, what she's goddess of, what her symbols were, or anything else. No they just say that the right. month is named after her and there were feasts in her honor. Right. That's it. And any uh, anything else comes at a much later date from, dun, 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 <sighs> villain of the century, Jakob Grimm. <laughs> Oh, gosh. So, those not familiar with Jacob Grimm, you might know him as Jacob Grimm of the Brothers Grimm. You probably grew up hearing Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Uh, they weren't just fairy tale writers. They were anthropologists, linguists, uh, lexi lexographers, uh, authors. And so in 1835, Deutsche Mythologie, German mythology, was published by Jacob Grimm. And in Deutsche Mythologie, 
Grimm took Bede's word for law and expanded on her with no evidence but etymological suspicions. Remember, he is a linguist. And mm-hmm. he also gave her the name Ostara from Usta. So O-S-T-A-R-A from E-O-S-T-R-E. <laughs> Hopefully I air spelled those correctly. So he said, we Germans on this day call April Ostermonat, and Ostermonat is found as early as Ignat. The great Christian festival, which usually falls in April or the end of March, bears the oldest of OHG remains the name Ostara. It is mostly found in the plural because the two days were kept at Easter. This Ostara, like the Anglo-Saxon Eostre, must, uh, must in heathen religion have denoted a higher being, whose worship was so firmly rooted that the Christian teachers tolerated the name and applied it to their own grandest anniversaries. Uh, there we go. Yeah, That's so part we, of the citation. So we've taken two sentences from Bede, and now we have Jacob Grimm expanding on them in two paragraphs. And people have just run with it after that. Two sentences, two paragraphs, and it's it's remarkable all of the associations that people have derived from this supposed in-depth essay that apparently we're going off of with Bede and Jacob Grimm. You know, and the, a... the thing, the thing that about. And the thing about Jacob Grimm is I find that, like, yes, we can we can find some value in his, what's the word, his assertions, his theories. But I think that that's the distinguishing factor is that in a lot of these situations, what we're seeing is an academic theory. It's a hypothesis, right? And every hypothesis has to be proved. And so just because Jacob Grimm is stating his hypothesis via etymology about a particular spirit that we can see potentially in a isolated region of the Anglo-Saxons, it does not necessarily mean that that is a fact. And so what what's you know frustrating, obviously, that we're going to continue to get into is that people have ascertained that this is fact, but it's an etymological theory, period. Mm-hmm. So Grimm also forged a connection between Ostara and Easter eggs, which, okay, Uh, to quote, to what we said on page 290, I can add some significant facts. Fact is a very strong word for him to have used. (laughs) The heathen Easter had much in common with May feast and the reception of spring, particularly in matter of bonfires. Then through long ages, there seemed to have lingered among the people Easter games, so-called, which the church itself had to tolerate. I allude especially to the custom of Easter eggs and to the Easter tale which preachers told from the pulpit for the people's amusements, connecting it to the Christian reminiscences. Again. So again, no sources. Just none. It's just a, theories. It's a, a theory, linguistically. And, and I'm confused because at least, at the very least, the linguistic theory about her existence is supported by some academic basis or just like you know, solid factual basis you know etymology and say oh yeah this is a similar etymology we see here and here and here but like the eggs like where is that coming from well i i'm this is my hypothesis uh and it's linked to the idea of pagan purity and yeah. which we know Jakob Grimm is a fan of and we'll talk about pagan yes. purity in a little bit yes um, but there's a quote nationalism 
There's a really good quote which says, to quote, most importantly, there is no direct evidence for Grimm's Ostara. She is an extrapolation from the Anglo-Saxon Osta and the existence of common terms for Easter in Old English and in Southeastern dialects of Old High German. Grimm's interpretation of the role or function of Osta as a dawn goddess is also problematic and variations such as Helm's I claim that the idea of dawn was here extended to the dawn of the year when the days lengthened after the spring equinox and thus to a spring goddess do not carry conviction so the concept of her uh what she was a goddess of is mm -hmm. largely based in the etymology of the term and there right. are theories about what she was the goddess of some people say right. because she was celebrated in spring she must have been a spring goddess right but that For all we is... know, there could have been a very particular historical event that happened in the Anglo-Saxon past, and it happened in the month of April, and then after that, they all venerated her. She could have also been a real person. We don't know that, because it's not uncommon for people to venerate real people later on as saints, or to begin to conflate those concepts. And so there's even the possibility that you know, and as we know, the um, Germanic people um, or many of the Germanic tribes in pre-Christian Europe uh, had priestesses. And so what if she was a priestess that they just began to venerate after her death? We, we don't know. Truly, we don't know. And the, the etymology of her name, frankly, it's not relevant to the conversation about no. whether or not she's the basis for Easter, which is no. something that people love no. to bring up, no. which <laughs> interesting, though it is not necessarily on the topic of the conversation at hand when we have the conversation about whether or not right. she is the basis for Easter. Right. But one of the most common facets of the myth that she must be the cause of Easter is the idea that Ostara's symbol was the hare, the rabbit, <laughs> the bunny. Because what do bunnies have to do with Jesus, right? So in 1874, Adolf Holtzmann published his own Deutsche Mythologie. So there's the Deutsche Mythologie published by Jakob Grimm, and then the one published by Adolf Holtzmann. crazy. People really love that title. They really they, do. They, they couldn't have title. added subtitles. No, they no. couldn't have added like a secondary title. They're like, Jacob Grimm really nailed that. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> Yeah, so he added a more developed narrative about Ostara and her hair. So to quote, the Easter hair is inexplicable to me, but probably the hair was sacred to the uh, was the sacred animal of Ostara, just as there is a hair on the statue of the Celtic Celtic goddess of Nuva. Which that okay, and, well, and there's no, I don't know why, I don't I, <laughs> I don't know why he would even begin to compare these two goddesses because they're from entirely separate regions so like, uh Avnova, i believe is from the black forest yeah which is yeah. in Süddeutsch, southern germany yes she, and, and then so the um let me see here this particular relief is talking about so far north i believe we're talking about kent the area of kent yeah well and so it, we're and, talking massively different areas so it's like realistically we're talking about baden-württemberg and we're talking about or how do you say yeah baden-württemberg i'm trying to remember well, how to say actually it. right is how baden-württemberg baden baden no i think it's baden, baden? baden? Well, well not, actually you know like what? English, i don't think like, i've ever said in english so that's what i'm saying i was like well hold on now well, anyways <laughs> the siri okay so the re while you're looking it up, the relief that they're talking about is specifically from a little town that is probably an hour left of Stuttgart. So, Stuttgart. yeah, it's not anywhere even remotely close to where the Anglo-Saxons live, which is basically by Hamburg, you know? I mean. Yeah, so we're talking 
southern versus northern Germany. Right. Completely and, different areas. Also. She said. Oh. I need to turn on my sound. <laughs> Baden-Württemberg. Baden-Württemberg? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Baden-Württemberg to Baden-Württemberg? Okay. Anyway, I can't listen to that again. That was horrible. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So he brings up a a statue of a different goddess mm-hmm. completely. And right. was like, well, just like this one goddess has right. a rabbit on her statue, she right. was probably – animal. these rabbits were probably sacred to Ostara as well. And <laughs> just seven years later – uh, an author named Aka Naga already had a specific story in which Ostara rode over the fields in a spring wagon drawn by okay. hares, which I believe is inspired by Freya's wagon dr- or chariot drawn by cats. It's, yes, it is. But what's what's and that's really... my hypothesis, unsighted. Just well, it's no, and it's not wrong. But what's really frustrating to me is that that legend it does not belong to Ostara. It belongs to Freya, and so Fra it's in English that's Frau. I, I don't Herkta. I, I don't even be H E R K E. I think I said a T. There's no T in there. I'm losing Frau my Hecke. Hecke, Yes. So okay. Frau Hecke is is very specific to um basically by Brandenburg and Mecklenburg Vorpommern. So she's from basically northeast Germany okay. in terms of folklore. And um, there is a legend in folklore there that she has a chariot that's pulled by hares. And it's not unsurprising because in that same region, there is, um, that's basically where the Scandinavian German legends and the continental Germans essentially begin to like touch and overlap and whatnot. And so it's not, it's not shocking that that legend would then exist in a folkloric sense for a different entity. Um, But again, nothing to do with ostara why would you why would you say that she has a chariot road where that's being pulled by rabbits like that's a whole other person and so then we're getting into this very dangerous territory where we begin to start conflating these various separate figures and erasing the regional cultural nuances that strongly differ like that's that, that that's not yeah. really acceptable so Stephen Winnick, who is a PhD folklorist who published research on Ostara and the hair, which is a very concise uh, article you can find online. Uh, really I one. highly recommend reading it after you finish listening to this very long discussion, <laughs> uh, points out that there is no single of discussion of Ostara and rabbit that predate Grimm's Deutsche Mythologie. But less than 30 years later, people were publishing articles that cite mythologies that uh, created to promote the idea that Ostara transformed a bird into a hare without any sort of provenance, citation, and citing it as ancient uh, fact. And again, this is less than 30 years later. And it's yeah. it's interesting because we're sitting at a, at a really interesting point in time now where we can look back. This was the 1800s mm-hmm. and early 1900s. And mm-hmm. we look and we're like, oh, how did people do this? And yet people are doing the exact same thing now right. with exactly. infinitely more research, resources exactly. yeah, to exactly. fact check. I mean, look at, we'll get to it, the naming of even this holiday <laughs> happened uh it's more than 30 years ago now right but there's right. infinitely more access and yeah. yet these same er- yeah. errors per uh, c- continue right and and it's i understand that like 
the thing that I think that a lot of people also don't understand is that a lot of the motivations that were happening in this time frame, because this is all happening during the period of European Romanticism, and European Romanticism um, was really at its peak in the 17 to 1800s. And the purpose of this was basically like a artistic, literary, you know, resurgence and movement, very similar, I guess, in, in its strain of thought to like the Renaissance. Um, but the thing, one of the trademark characteristics of romanticism was nationalism. And I think that a lot of people have a very difficult time understanding how we get to things like, for example, ecofascism, right? Oh, somebody's an environmentalist. That's great. Oh, they want to be an environmentalist using fascism. Well, that's not great. But we get to these convergence of weird ideas because we can see that happening in European romanticism. People cared about nature. They were trying to revitalize paganism. They cared deeply about spirituality, but they also were encouraging distrust of science, nationalism, individualism, very like toxic ideologies that contributed to these notions. And so I think that sometimes we hear this sentiment that there was a lot of like folklore and stories and that they were infallible. And obviously, mm -hmm. as a German folk practitioner, I, I very much cherish folklore and fairy tales, and I like to examine them. But at the same time, we have to do that with a critical lens, because if we just accept everything that we're hearing and assume that every all of these stories, even if they are about Ostara, if we assume that they absolutely were incepted back in, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, you know, 500 BCE or something crazy, you know, assuming that they're ancient, we're going to miss out on this critical lens and, and we're going to miss out on understanding that some of these legends very likely could have come from European romantic thought. And some of these legends might be very new. We don't know that they're ancient. It's also important to note that one of the progenitors of this mythology, Jakob Grimm, is a noted nationalist yes. Yes. and published highly anti-semitic highly racist mm -hmm. works in the name of folklore mm -hmm. folklore yep. is not uh always a neutral item right no, we have never. to understand how it can be weaponized as a tool of right. fascism of very right. harmful things one of the most right. uh popular of the anti-Semitic legends that he propagated is called the Jew in the thorns. Right. And right. there was no need, right? There was no, no. need to keep it or no. promote it or do it, but there was no. a wish on his and his brother's part to create it. And the nationalism that was, mm -hmm. uh, the folklore mm -hmm. that they really mm -hmm. created because Jakob right. Grimm and his brother were truly innovators in the field of folklore. I mean, we all grew up on the Brothers Grimm. Even if you're not a German kid, you mm -hmm. grew up, you watched, if you watched a Disney oh, yeah. movie like Snow White, yeah, you exactly. were impacted we all, basically. <laughs> by the Brothers Grimm. Like, if yeah. you watched any Disney film ever mm -hmm. after, the, after mm -hmm. Snow White, you were impacted by Grimm. It's really important to understand how there is a pebble in the pond ripple mm -hmm. effect from right. these works. Right, And... and and folklore, folklore is a tool of the folk. And I think that what we need to recognize is that the folk are not a passive group of people. The folk have their own individual motivations. They have communal motivations. And it's very possible that some of these stories just were incepted by one individual and then perpetrated, you know, throughout history. We don't know exactly. Um, and so it's just one of those things that I think that we get into incredibly dangerous territory when we assume that any individual is not capable of harm or of evil thought that even even somebody even if it was somebody's old granny 
who's coming up with the idea of a story, she could have also been anti-Semitic. She could have also been deeply racist. She could have had her own issues that even if this old granny who lived in, who, who was low income, whatever, you know, that you would sort of want to sympathize with, it doesn't mean that she was above reproach. It doesn't mean that she was without, that she was infallible, i.e. folklore and the stories that are coming from the folk are not infallible. And we have to examine them with a critical lens. And sometimes that means addressing, is that ancient or is it not? Because if it's not ancient, we're suggesting it is. What are we really doing here? And again, it's also when we talk about individual on an individualistic level, we do have to remember that every single person doesn't exist in a bubble. Right. And you can have unconscious biases that right. you need to address. And I think a lot of the problem that we see today comes from and in the modern era, it comes from people who are very well intentioned. Mm hmm but have absolutely no understanding or intention of dealing with their unconscious right. biases. And because right. of these, these, you know, a sock under the blanket <laughs> ruins the, ruins the right. way of the look of it, yeah. you know? Um, so how did Ostava become a holiday? And mm -hmm. I think this is where we get to such mm -hmm. a strange point because up until this point, we just have a goddess who is kind of, being speculated about given symbols, mm -hmm. given history, given stories, mm -hmm. but we don't have a holiday yet. So it's mm -hmm. a little bit important before we talk about the holiday itself, we have to talk about Wicca. For those of you who don't know, Wicca is a modern religion that mm -hmm. believes itself to be the surviving vestige of a pre-Christian witch tradition of the witch cult. So Margaret Murray was the creator of the witch cult theory, essentially, or one of the biggest progenitors or, um, I'm sorry, one of the biggest uh, propagators of the witch cult theory. And uh, Gerald Gardner was the founder of Wicca in the 1950s. And he believed in the witch cult theory um, that mm -hmm. there was a pre-Christian witch tradition of all these witches <laughs> who worship a lord and a lady, a god and a goddess. And Wicca yeah. is the surviving tradition from that. Yeah. Now we know that any reputable scholar knows that witch cult theory was debunked right after yeah. Margaret Murray's death. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thank you, oh. Margaret. <laughs> oh, Maggie, what a joy. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Thank really you so appreciate much. it. Really. Couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> so the celebration of the equinoxes did not begin within Wiccan circles until the time of the in initiation of Doreen Valiente, uh, mm -hmm. with some scholars asserting that her joining uh, gave Wiccans the pretense to begin their celebrations because she lied to her family and said that she was a druid and they mm -hmm. did celebrate the equinoxes. I remember at the time when she was uh, joining, it was witchcraft was illegal in certain aspects, mm -hmm. in many aspects. Mm -hmm. Indeed, uh, Gerald Gardner, Wicca's founder, held out on giving the equinoxes full uh, status and equal observation as celebratory days until 1958. So he wasn't even in really into it. And it was Doreen mm -hmm. Valiente who really went for it, which right. is a lot, a lot of Wicca, really. We can Right, right, yeah. Um, now, remember, the holiday that is currently celebrated as Ostara is the spring equinox. Right. And that is because in San Francisco in the late 1960s, an American named Aidan Kelly, who, by the way, still alive, still publishing, still posting. <laughs> that blew my mind. Like, yeah, still around, like, hold, totally hold still on. around. This uh, guy? Aidan Kelly, 
named the equinoxes in a oh let me actually give you a really interesting quote it's actually kind of long i say read it to quote gardner himself remained very resistant to the idea of giving the solar feast the full status of festivals perhaps because he associated them with druidry or perhaps because margaret murray had stated so firmly that the quarter days had been the great feasts for witches as a result within the small but growing network of wiccan covens the solar feast still tended to be regarded as minor events celebrated at the nearest full moon to the dates concerned and treated as less as of less importance than the quarter days its members felt that the solstices in particular had great importance as calendar events and that the equinoxes made a perfect symbolic balance for them they therefore asked for equal observance of both the cardinal points of the sun and quarter days as close to the actual dates was conveniently possible gardner gave way and in this manner the modern pagan calendar of eight festivals came into being gardner himself still felt that the only the quarter days were quote-unquote grand witches feasts and this tradition lingered long in some branches of wicca nonetheless the basic pattern of the eight feasts was now the norm so if you look at the quote-unquote wheel of the year which mm -hmm. is expected of almost all witches to celebrate no matter what tradition right. or you have it's really or if you, even like, if you're just spiritual they're like do you celebrate the wheel of the year get bullied into it like you better what what are you doing for the what are you doing nothing I'm not, what are you what are you doing for letha nothing eat not some doing pizza anything. we're not doing anything so first of all i'm working i have a job <laughs> Anyway, oh, so this yeah. eight pattern, this pattern of eight feasts came into being. Mm -hmm. right? And mind you, at this point, there was still no name for it. And it wouldn't be mm -hmm. until after the death of Gerald Gardner in 1964 that there would be a name. Because in 1974, mm -hmm. Aidan Kelly named the spring equinox. He named the spring equinox Wostara. He's also responsible for Mabon <laughs> and uh who mabon is a wealth uh, i'm sorry a welsh mythological figure and letha so to quote <laughs> and this is from aiden kelly's own blog back in 1974 i was putting together a pagan craft calendar the first of its kind as far as i know listing the holidays astrological aspects and other stuff of interest to pagans we have gaelic names for the first four celtic holidays it offended my aesthetic sensibilities that there seemed to be no pagan name for the summer solstice or the fall equinox equivalent to Yule or Beltane. So I decided to supply them. <laughs> the spring equinox was almost a non-issue. The Venerable Bede says it was sacred to the Saxon goddess Ostara, or Osta, from whom we get the name Easter, which almost everywhere else is called something else like Pash, mm -hmm. derived, of course, from Pesach, and that is Hebrew for Passover. <laughs> So even there, Aidan Kelly says in 1974, yeah. he decided to name it Ostara, right. even right. though, uh, and all he's saying is that Easter is etymologically related to Osta, mm -hmm. and everywhere else, the name mm -hmm. is related to Passover. So he is not saying that Easter is stolen from Ostara mm -hmm. ever. No. And I know we talked about this outside of the podcast, but wouldn't you be livid if you named a holiday and then less than a hundred years later people were so well you, in your lifetime people were like no it's an ancient holiday how dare you i named it that is my I brainchild mean, oh my god i would be so irritated except i wouldn't like in theory because i'd be so embarrassed that like <laughs> So, like, outside of, like, being mortified at the same time, yeah, I'd be pissed. Like, 
quote me, like cite me. You got this. I this is my idea, but it's an embarrassing idea. Like, and it's so ridiculous because it's <laughs> we don't even know. <laughs> it's so like, what is he saying? Like, the, what did he? Hold on, let me go back to this quote where he said something about the Celticness of the. Where is the? Where is it? Oh, it's for the other four holidays in the um the wheel of the year yeah where he's like the you know for the celtic holidays and it's like well okay but like you don't know that only celtic people cared about like it's just it's just a bizarre way of wording it in my opinion like i, I don't understand like frankly this, this thought process i yeah look when creating a calendar of this sorts we do have to remember that he's a <laughs> member of i believe one of the new reformed order of the golden dawn mm-hmm. now yeah. don't cite me on that one because i am not sure if that's the exact name i'm pretty sure he was in some sort of group I for the can't, golden dawn. it was one of the golden dawns but i don't remember yeah. which one so i'm not gonna i know I'm i even forget there's sure multiple versions of it um but there's actually there's actually a really interesting quote it's very long but i will read it because it, it actually provides an interesting perspective on what you were just oh, talking yeah. about yeah so, you have to um, read that one yeah the liturgy that resulted was largely the work of one man, Aidan Kelly, who acknowledges that his sources were all literary. The most influential author amongst them was Gerald Gardner, followed by the poet Robert Graves, and then a list of lesser names, including Margaret Murray and Dorian Valiente. Unsurprisingly, the festival pattern that Kelly adopted was the Eightfold Wiccan one. The rites he created, however, were almost completely different. Most of the liturgy was in one verse, and it was an original composition based on Kelly's own reading of ancient mythologies and medieval literature, often mediated through Victorian and Edwardian commentaries. For example, those from Midsummer were based on the Arthurian legend in conformity with with the 19th century idea, apparently first floated by Edward Davies in 1809, but subsequently very widespread, that Arthur was was a transfigured sun god. Midsummer became Letha, the Anglo-Saxon word for this, that season, as found in the writings of the early medieval monk Bede. Yet again, Bede. Beady little eyes. It may have helped that it had been appropriated as lithe for the Midsummer <laughs> Festival found in the Hobbit's calendar in J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I... It, like I, I'm conflicted here because on one hand I am ab- I, I'm appalled, and then on the other hand I'm like, all right, yeah, a, a Lord of the Rings holiday, let's go. <laughs> but at the, it's just the idea that the name potentially came from a Hobbit holiday, or was at least inspired by it, is is really something. I. You know, so I think Ronald Hutton's saying that they're both inspired by the same thing, but I just think it's hilarious that like I just yeah from like from it came two new holidays, one right. neo pagan, one Hobbit. I, I just, both I of love, them I, perfect. Because in my mind, it's like I can't like I know that it may not be right. Also, I feel like the Hobbit's holidays might be a little bit more fun. Oh I'm yeah, gonna lie. Oh, hundred percent, they were. Also. And I'm telling you this personally, and maybe anyone else on the podcast. I've only ever seen the first Lord of the Rings movie, and one of the Hobbit movies. But like, I just love the idea of like Aidan Kelly reading. <laughs> I love the idea of him reading Lord of the Rings. I was like, no, now hold on, hold on. Wait a minute, this that's, sounds that's, fantastic. That's, that's something. <laughs> Ooh, 
All right, so Hutton continues to quote, Kelly dealt with the spring equinox by applying the name Ostara, which is simply the most euphonious of the early Germanic equivalents for Easter. It was, moreover, one highlighted by the greatest of all pioneers of the study of German folklore, Jakob Grimm, who has suggested that it had originally been the name of the pagan goddess. Kelly composed rites for, for it associated with renewal and rebirth. He named his autumn equinox festival Mabon, which to British scholars might seem preposterously inappropriate. <laughs> it is a proper name derived from the Welsh word Mab, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing these sort of close i don't speak welsh yeah. and i'm so sorry for the mispronunciations if there are which i'm sure there are um which means son or boy which hardly suits an autumnal festival he got there by a route that is typical and to and revealing of american pagan syncretism his starting point was the greatest of all european myths that can be associated with autumn the return of the goddess core or persephone to the underworld for the darker half of the year her story therefore became the core of the ceremony that he composed for the festival. The name and the Welsh connection, however, seemed to derive from the work of the Welsh scholar uh, W.J. Griffith. Ooh, yeah, that's hard. It's... Griffith, published as an article and as a book, it emphasized the identity of Mabon, a character known from medieval Welsh literature as a former pagan deity, an attribution that is possible, although arguably unproven. Griffith went further to make Mabon into a young god born of a great goddess, a male divine parallel for the Greek Persephone. This was one of the last examples of the Victorian tradition, now almost completely abandoned in Britain, of interpreting medieval romance as echoes of lost pagan myth. Kelly's creation of his Mabon festival marks one of the main differences between the British and American constructions of modern paganism in seasonal observance as in other respects. From Britain, Greece and Wales seem a very long way apart. From California, however, they can look <laughs> quite close together. And America is, after all, a melting pot of peoples and traditions from all over Europe and beyond. There is therefore a common quality of syncretism and a range of cultural catchment in modern American paganism that is much less commonly found in that of Britain. Kelly's new coinage of names for festivals proved extremely influential in the United States, getting into the mainstream American paganism as the latter developed in the 1970s through his contribution the dog again. Sue's contributions as the most widely read journal of the movement, Green Egg. What a great name, though, I will say. Green I mean, Egg? I think that, like... Dr. Seuss-inspired? Right. Also, sorry. I, want, so sorry. I want there to be a restaurant named Green Egg. Like, I know that shouldn't be something I would want to eat at, but I would totally eat at a restaurant called Green Egg. I think this is a really interesting portion. I just read for a really long time. Uh, but <laughs> I think it's a really interesting... Mm -hmm denotation of how the festivals are named after such a mishmash of right. European traditions. I think that what, what I'm immediately reminded of is just the constant back and forth that I feel like Americans are having with Europeans when it comes to like these type of like pre-Christian or folk traditions where it's very much like it's very much appropriative because what you're doing is you're taking things out of their cultural context and you're taking things out of basically any form of context and you're just slapping the name on there and you're saying here's what we're gonna do and it's totally from you know it's totally welsh it's totally british it's totally german whatever and it's and it's just not because you're you've severed it from its point of origin and you've severed that nuance and so it's like it's just really interesting to me that people are okay with that because i, but think... I think that's a feature not a bug right 
I mean, there's a, there's another quote that I'm going to read in a minute. Yeah. I, I love a good quote, but it yeah. talks about how if we look at Gardner's thesis, which is right. essentially talks about Margaret Murray's thesis, which is that right. it's a vestige of this pre-pagan, this pre-Christian right. tradition, right? Right. If your thesis is that anything I do is actually ancient and I'm the only one who has this tradition, then yeah. you can pretty much say whatever you want right. and do exactly. whatever you want. Exactly. And exactly. say that you can basically cut out the middle, I right. don't know, a couple thousand years of time yep. and just say, oh, scoop it out and be like, this is the real history. This is the real think, timeline. Is this a good time for the soup analogy? Oh, the soup analogy. The soup analogy. We got to talk. Go okay. <laughs> I love the soup analogy. Full credit to you for the soup analogy. Oh, this, thank you so soup, much. <laughs> <laughs> and the soup analogy is that if you have, let's just say a potato soup, right? Okay, let's just say that the potato soup is like pre-Christian traditions. And then separately, you have broccoli soup, which you could say is the Christian traditions. And if you pour these two soups into the same bowl, you now have potato broccoli soup. It's not potato soup. It's not broccoli soup. It's potato broccoli soup. It's an entirely different dish. And you can look in the dish and you can say, oh, hey, those potatoes, they came from this soup. And oh, the broccoli, this came from this soup. But the effort to like weed things out is not even remotely worth it, that my, in my opinion. Or possible, because it's stirred together possible. and it's right. covered in the other thing. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it's like... You can still see it, but it's covered right. in the other thing. Right. And, and what you have here in this, like, in this Wiccan construct is you have people who are feeding you potato broccoli soup and they're saying, oh, yeah, you can only eat this part of it, though. Like that, this right here, um, and this is the best part. But but like, don't touch anything else. And also, because... the other things aren't even there. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're fake. telling you, it's <laughs> oh, here's your potato soup. And it's like, well, or here's there's your... broccoli yeah. in this. Like, well, there's it's like, no, no, it's actually not broccoli. Those are just tiny trees. <laughs> well, no, it's broccoli. Very oh, no, it's delicious. Just tiny herbs. trees, <laughs> little tiny trees. <laughs> no, no. And the other thing is, <laughs> even if you kept, like, even if you did right. reserve two small bowls of right. potato soup on the side and broccoli soup on the side. Right. The big pot in the center that you push the put them both into. Right. Isn't chain. Isn't that that right. doesn't make it, it two individual bowls. It's right. still a, a bowl that's been mixed up. Right. And the wish to separate the soup right. may be, come from a good place. And I think that a lot of the time right. people assume that these conversations mm -hmm. come from a inherently malicious right. or harmful, right. you know. Uh, right. It's like when we say you can't unsoup the soup, people say, <laughs> oh, well, why are you being so mean? This isn't to be malicious. It isn't to come from a rude or right. nasty or hurtful place. Right. right. There, in, I think soup is failing us here tragically. You have to think <laughs> about the greater, the greater history here. Right. Um, that we just right. simply can't undo right. history. And we right. can't take it away. No. And... Well, because it's like yeah. it—it's it, like the recipe has been passed down for generations to generations because people like this, like these groups of family, whether you like it or not, have loved this recipe and they've been passing it down, because even though it's not holistic, it's not holy broccoli, it's not holy potato in this in this soup, it's something different, and it doesn't mean that it wasn't loved. And I think that that's the interesting thing is I think that a lot of people assume that the presence of like Christian motifs and themes is 100% always under the guise of force and violence. And while that may often, maybe not often, but but 
while that has definitely been true, it has not always been true. Because in the recent well, I think past, that's often an appropriate. I think that's often mm-hmm. um, based on the extreme and extraordinary violence that indigenous right. peoples of the Americas, and <sighs> the indigenous yes. peoples of and other yes. areas, essentially right. indigenous peoples right. outside of Europe have faced. Right, and right. I think <sighs> this is something I've been kind of like mulling recently because I think that what we're having right now is I and. While I do believe, honestly and truly, that I think a lot of pagan reconstructionists have an absolutely great place of heart, I think that there is a subconscious inclination to compare pre-Christian Europeans to the indigenous Americans or other groups of people who were absolutely decimated by Christian European colonization. And I don't think that it's in any way... I don't think that it's moral. I don't think that it's okay to even subconsciously compare these two things because I think that they are dramatically different in both the reasoning and both the execution. Unfortunately, that's also a literal term. But I I think that it comes from this place of often a desire of victimhood because I think that people, I don't know, I, I think that they perhaps have been a victim of Christian trauma Absolutely. And that's perfectly valid, you know, not to not to in any way uh, invalidate somebody's Christian trauma by any means. But I don't think that getting into the um, trauma Olympics <laughs> or creating the trauma Olympics is really the right way to go here. Yeah. So getting back to Wicca, <laughs> unfortunately, um, to quote, by the opening of the 1980s, most Wiccans, let alone pagans, outside of the Wiccan tradition, had lost any realization that the pattern concerned had been established in the 1950s. We're talking about the calendar. Mm-hmm. It was rather accepted as an intrinsic feature of what was regarded by many, following Gardner's claims, as a surviving ancient faith. So again, I think we're talking about a feature, not a bug. Because so much of what we see of modern witchcraft communities and modern Mm -hmm. neo-pagan communities comes from Wicca, Mm -hmm. it's a feature to believe that these things are ancient because the basis is that it comes – it's like how people say, oh, witchcraft is a religion. And people are like, no, no, it's not a religion. It's a craft. Well – Wicca teaches itself to be the, a religion and says right. that Wicca is the only religion and Wicca is witchcraft. Anything else isn't. Right. right? And only right. Wiccans are. Right. So it's a feature, not a bug. Right. Right. So right. because of this, after Aidan Kelly's naming of Ostara, it continued the spring equinox, the celebration of the spring equinox, continued for many under the name of Ostara. But the mm-hmm. traditions that were now celebrated were given a false history to fabricate this history of Ostara right. as an ancient, well-celebrated right. holiday, mm-hmm. falling prey to this fallacy that things have to be ancient to be valid or worthy mm-hmm. of doing. Right. And right. quickly from this, the lie started spreading that, oh, Ostara, what we're celebrating now at the Spring of Gronach, is actually the origin of mm-hmm. Easter. Mm-hmm. And all the traditions mm-hmm. that Easter has actually are ours. And... <laughs> It's interesting because we do know that it's mm-hmm. the other way around in a lot of cases. Right. For example, right. uh, to quote DC McBride, who is a pagan writer, and I specifically choose pagan writers to quote because as a non-pagan person, I'm often accused of perpetuating Christian. Yeah, they can. Uh, they can come talk to me if they have. You know. Oh my. Uh.
my computer isn't charging. That's at 10%. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> I heard that dunk. My diploma is sitting on the, is like on the floor. Oh no. God, and it Did fell it like... and it disconnected yeah. the part of yeah. the computer from the, other, from the charger, so which is God. That would have been awful. Getting a degree is dangerous. <laughs> okay. So, so DC McBride said, until I sat down to write this article, I had never been a fan of Ostaja. I'd always felt that it is a little, it is a little more than some pagan garnish placed atop a blatantly appropriated Christian festival. <laughs> Considering how neo-pagans tend to feel about Christian appropriation of the ancient pagan festivals mm. and deities, I felt it was wrong for us to do the same to Christians, no matter the rationale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it comes back to the idea that is Easter pagan? No, 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 it's not. It's not. And I, no, gosh, I, I just it, it again with this soup analogy, right? Like it, it's just because something looks like something doesn't mean it's that thing. Like being similar does not mean the same. Well, it also completely erases that many cultures around the globe have spring equinox. I mean, we can talk about how Persian right. New Year Nowruz right. yes, also and, exists. There's right, celebrations. I mean. Yeah. Passover is a springtime holiday. Right. Mind you, there are spring elements in Passover, not to mention the fact that the new moon, right? Right. 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 Whatever. Well, and this goes back into like just just general like Eurocentrism and people being Mm -hmm. woefully ignorant about religions that aren't Christianity. Because it's like, I understand that a lot of pagans, you know, um, are not Christian and that they have likely deconstructed from a christian religion or denomination but it doesn't mean that you don't still maintain christian bias unfortunately because you live likely in a western christian nation you were raised under christian teachings it's something that is just so intrinsic to the way that you think about things and the idea that you can separate that and be impartial is often not the case it it it, Because it's just so frustrating because the idea that Europe or that, you know, even Germanic, the region, however you want to look at that, is the only place in the world who uses eggs as a fertility symbol or that they're the only ones who use rabbits as a fertility symbol is it's just obtuse in so many ways because Mm -hmm. it's like, look at rabbits have babies constantly anyone oh, we'll get there oh we'll get there don't oh worry. yeah gosh, gosh just... any okay it's anyway. also it's also <laughs> where did christianity originate christianity mm-hmm. did not originate mm-hmm. in northern germany no uh, <laughs> so it's it really fails in so many ways in this mm-hmm. like this theory really does and it it's a very eurocentric worldview that completely ignores that we know for a fact that uh-huh. Easter is correlated to the Jewish Passover or Pesach. Right. Right. Um, the dates are inherently linked. And mind right. you, in 325, in the Council of Nicaea, they decided the dates of Easter. <laughs> Just like, again, people are like, oh, Easter's based on Ostar. And it's like, the council is the Council of Nicaea a joke to you? <laughs> like, they were working. Uh, so to quote, according <laughs> to the Nicaean uh, ecumenical <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> me, me bringing up the imagine me bringing up the Nicene Council for anything oh, other than to laugh. Uh, <laughs> the Council of 325 AD, Easter should be celebrated on the first Sunday after the full moon after the spring vernal equinox. 
says, all Eastern and Western churches follow this ecumenical council uh, ruling. The difference comes from the different interpretation of these rules. The Eastern Christian churches, Orthodox, follow the Julian calendar in calculating Easter days, while the Western Christian churches, Catholic and Protestant, follow the Gregorian calendar, right? Um, and indeed, Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb because he died during Passover. So example, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, get ye of the, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new, a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Don't you mean killed? I don't, anyway. Yeah, let, I, let don't me, I don't know. Hey, you know what? Well, here they are referring to him as the Passover lamb. <laughs> We know historically that Easter has been consistently celebrated throughout mm -hmm. history far before there was any evidence of Ostara as either a goddess mm -hmm. and God forbid as a holiday because that didn't right. come until the 1970s. Right. And so one of the things that I, I want to bring up and I have written down is when people say, oh, well, what are you expecting about ancient texts? So we, we are expecting these, these cultures to have ancient texts written down. <laughs> ancient cultures are going to have that. Uh, and people say, oh, well, not, what about oral cultures? Mm -hmm. Oral cultures don't, don't rely on texts, but that is, texts are not the only way mm -hmm. of establishing history. Mm -hmm. And to think that the only way that we can establish history is through text mm -hmm. is, is not accurate. Right. Um, things also, like art, textiles, traditional dance, yes. cultural traditions, right. artifacts. There are right. so many ways right. to establish traditions. Mm -hmm. And <sighs> it's not just text. No, and and you know the the thing that I that kind of like, hmm, the thing that I always think about when the conversation about you know well, what about oral history? What about the things that were unsaid? You know the things that oftentimes what this is what this is doing in in a function in an argument or a debate is it's just existing to basically say well you don't know, well I don't know you don't know you know what I'm saying like when people leave comments like that on TikTok or wherever it's just like. It's basically just a way to like nullify the argument in many ways. But if you also think about it like realistically, if you take oral cultures, like for example, a lot of like, um, as far as I understand it, a lot of indigenous American cultures um, primarily run or um, what's the word? <sighs> primarily utilize um, oral lore, oral histories, and that things are passed down as stories from generation to generation. And I think that like in theory you see that in other cultures but i don't think that it's necessarily accurate or even adequate to compare that system that exists in many indigenous american cultures to what we perhaps had seen in european cultures if that makes any sense because it's like well, people are trying to make this they're they're saying there might there might have been a prospective right. European oral tradition right. that we don't even know existed, right. but it, might, it could have maybe existed. And so because it could have right. maybe existed, well, this could have maybe perhaps could have existed right. based maybe on my idea of it is and, more and important I, than the history that we actually do know and have. Exactly. It, it, like that made up history is more important than real history. But also at the same time, it's just like I feel like. It, it, it's a kind of a no-brainer here, but I feel like it has to go be said is that Indigenous Americans also can basically pinpoint when their legends came about, what like the inception of it, the, the long history mm -hmm. of the oral stories. Whereas mm -hmm. for us, when we're studying, um, you know, specifically European stories, like in theory, a, a folk tale about Ostara or whatever, um, when you're looking at that, 
we do not actually know specifically what time frame some of these oral histories came from. And we don't know that they didn't get incepted in the middle of, of European romanticism, which was heavily rooted in revitalizing paganism, revitalizing uh, love of nature, things that would very fluidly inspire a desire to uh, reinvigorate this idea of Ostara, but also that were partnered with nationalist individualistic ideas. So we don't know that this folklore didn't just get inspired out of that wave of European romanticism. We simply I would argue not... that we do know, though. Because... Well, I would completely agree with you, and it's just I'm trying to throw with this. I'm trying to throw. You're, you're being so generous. You're being, being so, so generous. generous. <laughs> you're being so so generous. But I'm I would argue that we do because I think again, so. I think that one of the things that we have to un- remember is that culture doesn't exist in a vacuum, and mm-hmm. cultural stories mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily like. There's right, more right, than just. Right one person knowing it and that one person right and again maybe it's shared in one family but again it would Mm -hmm. be one family not right one person right who like your sister debbie your sister debbie heard it but Mm -hmm. you never heard it your mom never heard it no one literally zero other people have ever heard it before maybe debbie made it up right and that's i'm just saying like we can i'm not accusing debbie but i am saying (laughs) debbie has no citations Uh uh-huh yeah and therefore debbie's evidence will not hold up in a court of academic law yes all oral law cannot is 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 not the same i think that yes there's a lot of value to it yes there's a lot of um it's often very uh what's the word culturally cherished but it does not make it infallible and it does not mean that it all needs to be treated with the same Font and is? I think that's a great point that you just made. Cherished does not have to ch- cherish. You can uh-huh. cherish something right. without it being a historically long-held tradition. Right, right. And this is something right. that many many groups struggle with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something doesn't have – this is a, a, mm-hmm. a very common fallacy of, well, it has to be ancient for it to be worthwhile. Right. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. It's okay. No. You can build and create your own traditions, and they can mm-hmm. be a wonderful thing. And it's also kind of funny because, like, mm-hmm. in the Jewish community, something that we're like, it's such a new tradition. We'll talk about bar mitzvahs. We'll be like, <laughs> it's such a new tradition. It's from the 1400s. <laughs> so new. It's, it's it's such a new tradition. It's from I the 1400s. That. I love it. What if huh? <laughs> Well, no one is stopping you. You know, a lot of people will like come into me and, and approach and, and be like, well, how do I, like, where do I begin? And I'm like, just, just do it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be rooted in some sense of like, it's like, and we're going to talk about this, you know, the idea of like pagan purity, but it's like the idea that everything that's worthwhile extends to pre-Christian era Europe. And that's not at all true because my God, like, can you imagine, like, think if you think of people like that. So you're basically saying that nobody has been of any value from, like, the co- beginning of the common era to now? That's crazy to say that that 2,000 years is meant nothing. There was nothing that came out of there that was worthwhile to anybody? Seriously? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. So back to Easter, devastatingly. <laughs> Uh, the language that we use to describe Easter in English is fairly unique. The mm. language around it should be a giveaway. But because we have this very Eurocentric worldview, mm-hmm. all that matters to the people who are trying to make the Easter is stolen from Wastara argument are Germanic right. languages. Right. Um, 
In the vast majority of the world, Easter is not called Easter, but rather described with a word beginning with P, relating to Paschal, just as uh, relating to Pesach, just as Bede wrote, and that the word Paschal comes from Pesach or Passover, reminding people of its connection to the Jewish holiday. Very few languages use words that begin with anything other than P. Um, there's German Ostern, English Easter, Bosnian, and I do not speak any of the following languages, so oh, please yeah. forgive me here. Uh, Vaskeros, Croatian, Uskeros, etc. So mm -hmm. sorry to Croatian and Bosnian speakers. So sorry. Oh, um, <laughs> but there are very few languages that say anything other than P. It's usually right. Pasha, Pasqua, right. anything like that. And then things right. like in Spanish where they talk about the holiness of the week, like Semana Santa, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. almost everything refers to mm -hmm. it using a P word. And even in English, we say the Paschal month. But because of this obsession with this Germanic worldview of, of Easter, well, Easter sounds like Oster or, or Eostre, as they say in English, they must be related. And you know, like, no. Where, always... where did Christians originate? It wasn't right. in Hamburg. It no. I promise <laughs> you, it no. wasn't in Northern Germany. I can guarantee you Jesus no. was not crucified can you imagine? in Frankfurt. Yeah, like on a on a boat on a dock in Hamburg. You know. What I mean? <laughs> can you can you just imagine you... we're like in Schleswig-Holstein? <gasps> Jesus! <laughs> oh God! You know, and here's anyway. the thing: a lot of people are forgetting the integral role that the Anglo-Saxons played in the forming of the English language. The reason why you, as an English speaker, I'm saying you, this hypothetical person that I'm oh, arguing with, <laughs> that this person, you're, you're, you're like, well, Easter came from the Anglo-Saxons, the word did. Well, yeah, so did every basically other word that we use in the English language, because that's who we got it from. The Anglo-Saxons migrated over from North Germany, and they migrated to England England, where we got English, like it's it's a no-brainer here. I'm very confused. Like the, that, why do you think that England calls it East Anglia? Because the Angles lived there. Like they migrated over and we formed the English language. So like, yeah, duh, the word Easter comes from the Anglo-Saxons. I can't, oh, it's a revolutionary idea. Etymology. <gasps> yes. Like, hey, etymology is scary. No, that's entomology, <laughs> it is, it the study of it bugs. Is. It is. Oh God. The puppy also has awoken, and she's... You can't even see her Hi, face. She's... <laughs> Hello, Susan. So cute. Go settle. I love her droopy ears. Yeah, she's such a funny-looking dog. But, like, um, also, So like, there's why... no evidence. Oh, go ahead. No, no you... I was just going to say, like, why... Like, who decided? You know, and again, like, maybe this is my beef with the Anglo-Saxons. Like, why is the word etymology and entomology so similar? Like, one letter. And we're talking about language or we're talking about bugs. Like, that's just such a... Don't ask me any of that. Don't ask me that question. I brought, up, I brought that up in one of my linguistics courses when I was getting my degree. And uh, I was like, I hate that. They, yeah, they asked awful. us about words we hate. Um, yeah, I hate it. Yeah. I brought me kernel that as a word I hate. Kernel is a weird, uh, yeah. It, I, honestly, both of them, both versions of that word are, are weird. Yeah, I don't like awful, it. Awful, awful. Um, I mean, kernel as in C-O-L-O-N-E-L. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, that was colonel. like, who called colonel? But also, know, like. It was one of the words that I read and I never pronounced out loud. Mm -hmm. 
oh, devastating when I had to pronounce it out loud the first time. And I, also confusing when I would listen to an audiobook and they'd be like, Colonel, what's his face? And then I was reading the book and I was like, I thought his name was Colin old blah, blah, blah. blah. Was a That's literally one. me with German. Like I can't even begin. Like I do. I read German every single day, but I don't. I rarely speak it. And so then when I like, I'm like, into some Deutsch sprechen. Yeah, like I do. I okay. This is just like me. I'll cut this part entirely out. So I follow a bunch of German accounts on on TikTok because uh-huh. I I don't have anyone to German. I don't really speak German right. with a bunch of people. I speak right. to myself. Right. I speak to like my partner, but he doesn't speak German. Right. So he's like, right. He'll speak back in Spanish. Just your mom, really. Yeah, I speak with my mom, I speak with my siblings, but like, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, a wallet is a pop money. Uh huh. I have always been saying pop money. It's a <laughs> pot money. Hello. I have been saying pop money, which, like, if you say it fast enough, no one hears the difference of a P O P versus P O R T. No. I saw it on TikTok and, and the caption say, Ich habe mein Pop money for, uh, vergessen. Hallo, was? Du hast ein was vergessen? <laughs> huh? Was? Uh, like, I... Okay, like, so... Was? It, 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 it's just... God. Like, there's so many... There's also, so many Germans speak it. so much English now. It's so aggressively embarrassing. It, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, I don't... It, <gasps> I don't... I quite... It's like they, they're swapping in between it. And then, like, God forbid that I say I have an American accent when I speak. Yeah, God forbid. Like, what are we, we're stupid. Idiot. They literally, literally, I was watching a girl and so she does daily vlogs. She's like, yeah. Okay, ich muss ein picture auf Instagram. Um, uh, what did she say? She said, ich muss ein picture for Instagram nehmen. So we know there's no evidence that Easter is stolen from any sort of pre Christian holiday. Right. Uh, rather than created by early Christians largely drawing from Jewish origins. And mm-hmm. Mead refers to the Paschal month when referring to Ostamunat. And Aidan Kelly, the person who named Ostama, mm-hmm. refers mm-hmm. to Easter, uh, which almost everyone right. else has called something like Pash, derived, of course, from Pesach. So right out of the know. horse's mouth. <laughs> we know that this is not, Ostara is not stolen. Right. I'm sorry, no. Easter is not stolen from right. Ostara. Right, 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 right. Um, but now let's talk about this one important fact, which is that certain Easter traditions may have pre-Christian roots and existed mm-hmm. and lived on mm-hmm. through uh, Christianity and through right. Easter. But right. that doesn't make it evidence that no. the entire holiday is stolen. No. no. Right? The well, that's literally the premise of, of folk magic. My, it's like Christianity has, once it once Europe was Christianized, for so many people, particularly the common folk, Christianity was a, simply a medium for which so many pre-Christian things survived. And it's like, that's that's the crux of it, though, right? You have to identify, can we trace this? Or do we know, do we have solid oral lore? Do we have solid, solid written lore, solid oral lore? That these traditions you know, were they pre-Christian? Did they survive through the medium? Or did they just come from Christianity? And um, I know that a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about how Europe was Christianized. Do you want to just give right. a quick disc- quick overview of how a lot of Europe was Christianized? Well, for sure. And I, I think that this is such a delicate thing because I in no way want to... 
it's just a delicate thing because I don't think that there's really any way that you can accurately make one blatant statement that summarizes the nuances that go into it because I think there is this idea that we want to generalize everything and that also mm -hmm. applies to the conversion process. We want to generalize it into this way. And again, I mentioned this earlier, I do think that a lot of this, the way that we talk about it, is sort of like the Christian trauma coming back out and glare, you know, rearing its head and, and lashing out. And understandably so, because a lot of, gosh, I mean, we won't even need to get into the woes of which Christianity is inflicted. But mm -hmm. I think that there is this desire to basically point the finger at a bad guy and basically say that everything that I experienced is has been true forever since the Christianization. When in reality, there's actually a lot of people and a lot of groups that willingly converted. So you can't approach this generally. You have to approach it very much on a, uh, let's just say, tribe-by-tribe -tribe basis. So for example... Um, Constantine. Oh my gosh, I always get Constantine and Charlemagne confused. I'm, you keep are, talking, I have to go let the dog in. No, you're fine. Like when we look at Charlemagne, like Charlemagne very much uh, did forced baptisms. He did uh, forced conversions. And so Charlemagne um, had a violent conversion of the Saxons after he took rule of the Frankish Empire. Um, however, the Lombards... Um, the Vandals, the Goths, these groups actually willingly converted to various um, subsets of Christianity. And oftentimes what happened is the monarch over the particular tribe or group was the first to convert because there was a political advantage in doing so. Because the minute that Rome essentially converted to Christianity, there was that very much a power, adva power advantage in doing so and, and, and getting in line with people who had power. But that's not necessarily what was happening at the lower level with the common folk who, again, would be the ones practicing, let's just say, folk magic. Because what political advantage does somebody in a, a, a low social status or a lower social status have in converting? Not very much. And so a lot of monarchs um, really turned a blind eye to if their, sub, their, um, their people were converting or not. And so a lot of these things survived for a very long period of time because there wasn't really any threat. Um, we, we know that the Catholic Church basically had this stance up until, I can't remember the year, but for many, many years, I think until like a thousand something CE, the Catholic Church didn't care if people practiced witchcraft because they thought if they made a law about it, it would validate it. So they just ignored it. And so the idea that everybody was like... <sighs> Forgive me, I, I, I really think that a lot of people, and this makes me sort of, I mean, it does, it makes me sick. I think a lot of people are sort of trying to insinuate that what happened to the pre-Christian people is on par with what happened to Jewish people in the Holocaust, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Where people are like storming into your house and taking you away. And I, and that's, that's, that I shouldn't have to explain why that's disgusting, but but it is. And the idea that we're going to generalize this and say that every single every single pagan, every single witch is being discriminated against, and that back in the day everybody was it was violent and killed. And you'd gosh, the witch trials and, and all the misinformation oh, the witch that goes trials. into that. Like, yeah, that's that topic. I I don't yeah. even think I can begin to even talk about that because that's yeah. that no no I understand. <laughs> 
but it's just it's it there was no single thing that there's there's no single way we can generalize the conversion process some of it was violent yes but it wasn't all violent and what is so upsetting for a lot of people but i implore you to please understand this sometimes it was willing and sometimes and I people think that liked one it. of the points that you made that was important is that we oftentimes think that it was very much on a person-to-person basis, how we mm-hmm. see Christian conversion today, right? Right. We see a lot of missionizing on right. direct levels. So we see modern-day Christian missionizing as like one person to one person. Right. And again, I think a lot of these misconceptions come from people's education of the horrific forced conversions right. of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Right, and where 56 they think that million Europe people died. Where they think that Europe had the same experience. Right, we don't, yeah. It was often, in many cases, Mm -hmm. monarch would convert and the the kingdom would convert. Right, exactly. And it wasn't individual going, oh, my personal belief is now Jesus. It was Mm -hmm. the kingdom Mm -hmm. is now Christian. People are like, well, Mm -hmm. I guess we're Christians now. Right. And then they would just keep doing their traditions in Christianity. Well, and, and this is where, like, syncretism This isn't, again, in. this is in no way to diminish the true mm-hmm. violence that has been faced. And especially yes, for yes, the indigenous yes, peoples right, of Europe, right? To talk about right. the indigenous, the right. indigenous groups no, exactly. that still face violence across exactly. Europe. Right. Um, and again, this is in no way to diminish that. No, not at all. This is merely to combat this misinformation. And I think a lot of these misconceptions that are mm-hmm. still so... Mm-hmm. The misconceptions that have become romanticized in the yes. pursuit of victimhood. And a right. lot of that comes from, right. and we're going to talk about this in our section that's coming up. We'll get there eventually, which is talking about <laughs> um, where nationalists yes. were creating this this identity mm-hmm. of these perfect, untouched pure european pagans who were horrifically oppressed and slaughtered by these evil christians and a lot of it comes from a very anti-semitic view of Mm -hmm. the pure Mm -hmm. untouched aryan pagans who were oppressed and defiled by the disgusting jewish judeo uh, infiltrators right Absolutely. so that's this perspective that underlies Absolutely. a lot of these narratives even for people who don't hold mm-hmm. those beliefs because mm-hmm. a lot of it becomes sort of erased anyway we'll get there we have to get yeah. to that point because we have yes. to get to this point oh <laughs> you and i versus versus getting ahead of ourselves okay. oh i know i know so the to sum up the portion about easter isn't pagan the idea that the holiday must have been stolen from European pagans presents an extremely Eurocentric worldview that Eastern European, I'm sorry, that Western European pagans mm-hmm. are the only originators worthy of talking about, and it right. completely erases the origins of Christianity in Southwest Asia. And I right. think that it also completely erases a horrific history of Easter as a time of absolute disgusting violence. Yes. First centuries. Easter has right. been a time of horrific anti-Semitism against Jews, right. heightened right. anti-Semitism, because again, right. this is the time of Jesus' death, so right. it promotes mm-hmm. a lot of this concept um, mm-hmm. and a lot of this anti-Semitic notion, right. oh, the Jews killed Jesus. Right. Jews did not kill Jesus. And I, and, I, and for anybody who is not Jewish who's listening, I, I, I want, please sit, like, sit with that for just a second, right? That a holiday that has been used by Christians to enact more violence against Jewish people. Do you understand how upsetting it is to then turn around and say, oh, 
Easter actually didn't come from anything related to Pasha. Easter came from us. That is so upsetting. It's so wrong. It's inaccurate. And and it has it has to stop. It just has to. I appreciate you saying that one because when <sighs> I say it, they don't like it. On well, that note, we will take a quick break. And I'll break. say it again. <laughs> say it again. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back. And we're back for our break. <laughs> the magic of podcasting. We're back and we're gonna talk now about eggs because eggs are one of the central motifs. People are like, well, what does an egg have to do with Jesus? Because if you look at it at face value, you're very confused. Like, what does it have right. to do with Jesus? Right. And we have to talk about one thing. We're going to talk a little bit about it further in our section on pagan purity. But eggs don't just belong to pagans. One, Jews have been eating eggs at Passover uh, for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. There are theories that eggs were first seen at Easter because of tradition of Jews eating eggs at Passover. Mm -hmm. One egg being ceremonially included on a modern uh, uh, Seder plate. And the dog yet again. Okay. I can't hear it. I think you're okay. Great. Perfect. Um, now, the notion that eggs must have been stolen from pagans relies on stereotypes, misconceptions, mm-hmm. and misinformation. Now, you have been the subject to my studying of egg folklore. Um, now, oh, I, I include a lot of it, but I've so been much sending delight. forth so many <laughs> quotes and pictures of this yeah. incredible text yeah. that uh, is a folklore text of eggs. And... Uh, for a short history of eggs in Christianity. Uh, by the first century AD, the phoenix egg had become a Christian symbol mm-hmm. with St. Clement mentioning the legend in his first epistle to the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Ostrich eggs were placed in early Christian graves to represent resurrection. In 1662, ostrich eggs were d- documented hanging directly above the Holy Sepulchre. Ostrich egg shells also housed the relics of multiple saints. Uh, mm-hmm. St. Rupertus, who died in 718, had a mm-hmm. basket of eggs on his emblem. And that's mm-hmm. just a very, very, very short history mm-hmm. of how eggs are involved in Christianity. So one to Not add to... Not even related to, to Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely I should have said this to you earlier, but one fun one, too, is um, that Hildegard von, Hildegard von Bingen, who is actually from oh. uh, the Rhine um, mm-hmm. in Germany, and she's a renowned Christian mystic. Um, yes. And she wasn't in, in she wasn't in Christian Gnosticism, but she was, um, I think, just standard old catholic um but anyways she had a series of like mystical visions um and in one of them she had the revelation that the cosmos was shaped like an egg and so that's another one that seems pretty cool there we go now how did those so even though that's just christianity history with eggs right right right. clearly it has a history with eggs it does yeah but eggs and easter is Mm -hmm. also very very full Eggs are associated with Lent during the reign of Pope Gregory the Great. We can argue about that name another day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eggs were included in the forbidden foods for Lent. In Germany, Mm -hmm. it was outlawed to even sell eggs at Mm -hmm. this time. You couldn't even sell eggs during Lent. So if you had chickens, you would have to just store your eggs, which means after Lent, 40 days, do you know how many eggs you would have? Crazy amounts. So... 
There is a history across the Christian world to give eggs at Easter. Mm -hmm. Um, And naturally, at the end of Lent, Mm -hmm. after these 40 days when you can finally Mm -hmm. eat eggs again, Mm -hmm. eggs were an important part of the celebrations with references to colored Easter eggs Mm -hmm. as early as 1290. The year 1290 is when we have our first textual reference to colored Easter eggs. So, and that's just part of it, right? There's also a tradition of giving children eggs, giving out decorated eggs to uh, holy figures, to mm-hmm. uh, to uh, important figures. There's things such as egg tithes. There's mm-hmm. so much of it. So well, the book, mm-hmm, go ahead. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I can't remember. I don't think that we have that in here, but um, I believe I've read something that egg dying is a tradition that came from like the Orthodox I don't think it was, I don't know if it was Greek or Orthodox in somewhere in Mesopotamia. I'm sure I'm butchering some part of that, but um, that the, like the first record of egg dying was like ostrich eggs or something like random. I'd have to look that up, but I feel so like. So we have history of dyed eggs across uh-huh. the globe. So people right. have been dying eggs forever. Right. Um, but we're talking about it. specifically dying eggs for Easter. Oh, like, sorry, with yeah, a specific so I, meaning of there. No, but, and that's I think where I'm getting confused because I cannot remember if that tradition because it was in the Greek Orthodox context, I believe. I can't remember if they said it was mm-hmm. on Easter or not. So I'm just gonna. But here's the thing: side note. people Christians love ostrich eggs because again, yeah. the sim the eggs are a symbol of the resurrection, and what right. do Christians love resurrection, resurrecting, resurrecting this love argument it. every single year. God. <laughs> They actually do. Um, so, Venetia Newall's book, An Egg at Easter Folklore Study, not only dedicates multiple sections and subsections mm-hmm. to Christian eggs, but the vast majority of the over 400 pages are dedicated mm-hmm. to discussing Christian traditions about eggs. Mind you, this entire book is just about eggs. And yeah. the entire book it's an is... an incredible book. It's a very, it's a very it interesting awesome. book. Um, if you want to see something interesting, search for the egg dance in the Netherlands engraving by Her... <laughs> Hieronymus Koch, I think is his name, or a 17th century one by John Gall. These are two very, these are incredible pieces of art, again, depicting egg dances from two different areas. Um, One tradition in Germany says if you put a black hen's egg in the collection in church on Good Friday, you'll see evil spirits. In Lower Austria, a man with an Easter or Green Thursday egg, so an an egg Mm -hmm. uh, laid on those days, can Uh see witches who will be in church. Mind you, those witches are also believed to Uh carry a piece of ham instead of a Bible because ham relating them somehow to Jews. (laughs) Another interesting fact. But there is so much history relating Mm -hmm. Christian mythos to eggs. But... A lot of it is also anti-Semitic. Now, we've yep. talked about dyed eggs. Why are eggs dyed? So red is the most popular color for eggs across the globe. Right. And that is because of Jesus' blood. Mm-hmm. Now, depending on the anti-Semitic myth, the level of anti-Semitism, there's a couple different myths. The most common is that uh, Jesus was on the cross and then Mary, Blessed Mary, brought eggs to, and depending on how anti-Semitic it is, if it's more mm-hmm. anti-Semitic, it's the evil Jews who had him tied up. Less mm-hmm. anti-Semitic, it's the Romans. Um, she brought eggs to him and tried to bribe the people to let him off the cross. And she put the eggs down and his blood, like his wounds started mm-hmm. just bleeding and the blood mm-hmm. flowed from him onto the eggs. And he basically said, from now on, this is my, my blood washes over the eggs. And yeah. They die yeah. of that. However, there's also anti-Semitic mythos that, uh, Jews pelted Jesus on the cross with eggs that, uh, 
Jews sat down and had a the Jews sat down and were celebrating their Passover meal, but they were actually celebrating the murder of Jesus because they were so evil mm-hmm. that they were of course celebrating his mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the chicken on the table that that they were eating came back to life, resurrected. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and again, mind you. For centuries, Easter was a time of extraordinary, extreme violence against Jews. Mm-hmm. Mind you, there were also traditions of that you shouldn't eat the Easter egg mm-hmm. in certain areas because you didn't want to absorb the evilness of the Jews because the Jews had pelted Jesus with the eggs. And so you didn't yeah. want to eat the dyed eggs because Jesus' blood had flown onto them, had, had flowed onto it. Right. So Crazy. all of this is very much in, do- in Christian right. history and Christian mythology. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the myth of pagan purity in a little bit because we're going to talk now about Easter rabbits. Oh, don't you love it? The Osterhase. Osterhase. (laughs) Yeah. The dialect, the pronunciation of Osterhase. 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 I am always like enamored by whenever you get that, you know, somebody who has that accent wherever hearing a Schneidersch. I love hearing Plattdeutsch because it sounds so. It's like I. mm, It's like boy. Well, that is so my mom's family is from Niedersachse so yeah um whenever she describes it's funny because we we lived in in false so whenever she would talk to somebody she would ask them you know she would always try to get, like get answers about like these crazy things that her grandmother and that her mom were saying um because they you know didn't read wasn't raised speaking it and I remember like Germans would be like what are you even talking about that's not even a word she's like oh maybe i don't remember and i'm like and then the day that i realized that north germans speak basically an entirely different language i was like mom you won't believe it (laughs) like you were crazy so everyone says what do eggs have to do with jesus and what do bunnies have to do with jesus well bunnies don't have that much to do with jesus but they have a lot to do with mother mary the virgin mary the blessed mother as they call her now the european brown hair H-A-R-E, not hair from your head, has a rather (laughs) miraculous and terrifying feature. It can be pregnant with two litters at once, giving them the appearance of being capable of virgin birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, For this reason, very early on in the Middle Ages, they become associated with the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also represent lust in traditional Christian art. So Mm -hmm. imagery of the Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, the Madonna uh, with rabbits dates back to the Middle Ages, honoring Mm -hmm. her virgin birth and her triumph over lust. And so one very popular painting is that of the 1530s Madonna of the Rabbits by Titian. Titian? Mm -hmm. Titian? Titian? I don't know if that's that one. I don't know. Titian. You know, you know. Well, we call him T. By T. Now, again, here is the reason why there are bunny rabbits. Because the Virgin Mary. Right. And people also celebrated uh, Lent with Mm -hmm. rabbit hunts. And Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. there were certain traditions around hunting rabbits, creating rabbit pies, rabbit dishes, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And not to mention, predating any mention of Ostara and the rabbit, which again, we have in the 1800s. Right. In 1682, we have the first textual evidence of rabbits and Easter, just Easter mm-hmm. and rabbits, from Georg Frank von Frankenau's De Ovis Pascheribus. Me and Latin don't get along, so we're going to really yeah, go for that one. Um, 
published, again, nearly 200 years before any mention of Ostara and hares. So why do we have bunny rabbits on Easter? Because of the Virgin Mary and rabbits doing what rabbits do. Yeah. And it's like, that, and that's something that I think about often too. Again, we, you know, we talk about like synchronization because there's, there's absolutely German folk spirits that are heavily associated with hares and usually they are female spirits. So um, female spirits who have been syncretized to Mother Mary, like Frau Holle. So it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But in this situation, it's the rabbit. You know what I mean? Because it's like, were rabbits something that were uh, associated with Mary that came over? Maybe not because it's the European brown hair. So maybe this is something that is a pre-Christian remnant. I I would probably think so just because, again, it's a specifically a European bunny. But yeah, I mean, it's like, and then that's where those, where those associations, I think, for like Ostara and the rabbits are probably pulling from. But again, it's like this notion that because something was syncretized, that it's like Christian stole this from pagan. Like, meanwhile, folk practitioners are sitting there like, hey, yeah. Okay. Hey. Maybe. Forget about me. (laughs) So we're actually going to do something a little different. We're going to go back in time. We're going to go to 1905. Before Aidan Kelly declared the Ostara Equinox Declaration, (laughs) there was a far more sinister discussion Mm -hmm. about Ostara Mm -hmm. in general. So in 1905, a former monk, Josef Adolf Lanz, founded the right-wing magazine Ostara, and it published anti-Semitic, racist, esoteric, and quote-unquote Aryanist, folkish mm-hmm. theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was believed to have been read by Hitler, and quote, many of the ideas contained in Ostara formed the basis of later Nazi ideology. To quote, Ostara, or Ostara Briefbücherei der Blonde Nummer. Uh, Ostara, Newsletter of the Blonde and Masculists, was a German nationalist ma- magazine founded in 1905 by the occultist Lanz von Liebenfels. Uh, he had a uh, pseudonym uh, in Vienna, Austria, in which he published anti-Semitic and folkish theories. Uh, he, he derived the name of the publication from the reconstructed old high German goddess name, Ostara. Lanz claimed that the Ostrogoths and the nation of Austria in German Österreich were matronymically named after this goddess. So again, he's making not a, not only is he just an mm-hmm. absolutely horrific atrocity of a human being, he also yeah. claims that Austria is named after Ostara, and so are the Ostrogoths. Golly, what? Um, now. Published within these horrific magazines was much of the same rhetoric that we see today when talking about mm-hmm. Ostara, but with overt anti-Semitism and white supremacy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, now, like many pagans and occultists, Lance also believed that Ostara was the origin for Easter, but not because of the renaming that would come later, but because he believed that, quote unquote, Aryans mm-hmm. were the originators. Right. In right. fact, he saw Ostara as the patroness of the quote-unquote Aryan race. To quote, the Ostara is indeed the progenitor of the noble blonde Aryan heroic race, Vagano Gentium. Disgusting. Uh, that's from page 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. Now, to the naysayers who denied this false history, he said, to quote, some philo-Semitic Germanists have tried to deny the history of the goddess Ostara, but we follow Bede and Jakob Grimm, who are closer to us in race. Page 15. 
So people already were saying absolutely not to -hmm. them in 1905. And and I'm assuming that this was prior to his publication. So he probably floated around his horrific ideas and people said no. And so what did he say? He said, well, I only believe people Mm -hmm. who are closer to me in race. And mind you, we're talking about this anti-Semitic, white supremacist, Aryanist concept of race in 1905. And do you um, know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of people who don't who don't believe that you are an, an authority or a source to speak about Easter because you are not a Christian and because you are Jewish. I would like everybody to think about that for a moment. Hmm, where is this logic coming from? Hmm, where does this sounds a little familiar? Maybe. Where do you, Where do you think it came from? maybe reflect on that so he says he goes further and he says to quote certain easter customs are still reminiscent of these things a sure proof that they are all associated with the aryan heroic progenitor and goddess ustara uh, uh they are related mind you this is a translation of the original text which is only available as a pdf scanned in version uh in fraktur so yes good most, luck reading that it is yeah, B's look like V's, K's look like a weird T. S's look like L's. Who knows what an S and, is? And F's. Is it a, is it a double F? And an the yeah. A's, the A's look like... Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. I, I literally have posted a Patreon post about how to translate these old texts because I got so sick of it. Like, this is like... Just... I hate that Patreon post. Yeah, I, I will I send you the link because no. uh, one of the things that I'm... Well, one of the things I'm linking is a post from Yale because somebody from Yale was like, yeah, here's how to decipher this nonsense. <laughs> Yale it's said, impossible. no more. We're done. <laughs> yes, it's um, just like, I'm sick of this. So... We continue on page 13, paragraph 5, to quote, We also now understand that Ostara becomes not only the goddess of spring and the rising sun, but also the goddess of war and love, Mars and Venus. The Christian church, true to its principle of tolerance, has vowed the great and all-encompassing position of Ostara, was honored for the Aryan heroic race by raising March 25th, which incidentally designates the Easter time, even often falling during Easter time, to a Marian holiday. Uh, we're doing Latin again. Annuncia, annunciatio uh, Mari, uh, yeah, I, I, and thus fixed Maria in the know, place yeah. of the Aryan Ostara. To quote, at the same time of the year when every year for thousands of years in the Nordic gods, groves, and temples, the elite Aryan heroic youth united in the noble, rapidly pure, and rapacious love, then the church lets the divine Virgin Mary conceive the God-man and the world redeemer. <clears throat> and now this part is on page 15 where he makes another claim and this is uh he makes this claim further mm-hmm. where he pushes for <laughs> how these how ostara is actually the mother goddess of everything mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. of everyone to quote yes still more with it the ring of our comparative mythology research closes Astarte with moonlight, moonlight thus emblem and writing on the bull becomes identical with the goddess Europa. Ostara equals Astarte, Astarte equals Europa, Ostara equals Europa. Ostara is the progenitor and tribal goddess of the blonde Aryan heroic race born in Europe who swarmed over the whole world by ship, hence the crescent moon, and on the land by horse and cattle in counts in uncountable uh and then these two part were unsure translations so i'm not going to read these two parts essentially swarms bringing everywhere in the higher culture into the higher culture 
The forest monsters, amongst them the most dangerous ones, the gigantic ape men, either exterminated or forced into servitude, but also mixed with these inferior beasts in many places. Um, now, this translation of beasts could also be specimens or species. All of them horrific. Yeah. Uh, in many places, especially in the peripheral regions most, most remote from the northern European homeland, and thus gave the impetus for the disintegration of the lower and more colorful races and the tragic occasion for their own guilt and punishment. When I was so, um, going through this text, it was like, it took me a couple of pages to get to the stuff about Easter and Osara, but it's like, I had to write, I had to, to thumb through some of the most horrific things I've ever read in my life. And it was just like, yeah. just, and you're getting a taste of this here. If you're thinking this is bad, I promise you that there's so much worse in this text, just to give you an idea of how completely disease the nazi brain was just yeah and we can go further so in 1933 to 1945 a local folk custom in the town of Lucht involved the quote-unquote rededication mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. easter customs to ostara despite the fact that there was no evidence that those mm -hmm. customs ever had anything to do with her but mm -hmm. To quote, as night falls, six enormous oak wheels, Usterida, are filled with straw set ablaze and rolled down the slopes of Osterburg or Easter Mountain. Mm -hmm. Each wheel has a unique Christian message carved into the rim. But in order to, quote unquote, rededicate it to Ostara, the Nazis, quote, carried slogans in praise of the Reich, while torchbearers formed a huge blazing swastika on the slopes of Osterburg. The locals wholly opposed this mm -hmm. desecration of their tradition. And it's important mm -hmm. to know that, that the locals mm -hmm. wanted nothing to do with this. They mm -hmm. saw the Nazis taking their sacred, syncretic tradition, because mm -hmm. it's believed that this tradition is a right. pre-Christian tradition that yeah. survived through Easter, right. but it had nothing to do with Ostara, because she's not, right. <laughs> she wasn't part of that region nope. or nope. that specific area. Right. And they took it and, quote unquote, rededicated it to Ostara. Mm-hmm by carving slogans in praise of the Reich. And it's important, and you wrote a really important section here talking about how yeah. na Nazism had a huge part. Right. Uh, Nazism was fascinated with the occult. And a large part of it came from this it. idea of this pure, untouched Aryan right. pagan right. that well, still lives on in pagan thought. In yes. People who think that yes. they are anti-fascist. Yes, and that and that's again. I I I do want to be clear that I am. I'm appreciative of the work that a lot of pagan reconstructionists are doing in attempts to providing a a holistic religious structure that honors pre-Christian beliefs and and can be um, useful in modern day. But I, but I. I need everybody to know that 21st century pagan reconstructionism is not when it started. 21st century pagan reconstruction efforts are coming off of the wake of 19th century pagan reconstructionists. And 19th century pagan reconstructionists were nationalist people who had Nazi ideology or Nazi-like ideology. Because again, the period of European romanticism where you had this embrace of paganism, embrace of nature, and embrace of, embrace of nationalism, these types of things paved the way for pagan reconstructionists. And it didn't start off with this 
true Germanic faith, a lot of this is made up nonsense. A lot of this is literally dogma that's out operating under the guise of ancient religion. And so uh, it, it's important to understand the Nazis' history with occultism and the Nazis' history with um, paganism. And, and what you see in, in among the Nazis is basically two different ideas of religion. So some of them believed that Jesus, who was a Jewish person, was a false god and that Christianity was an example of Jewish people threatening the Germanic faith and life when, when Germany was Christianized. Okay, so, so you have this belief. Now, the second belief, which is equally horrific, was that Jesus was actually Aryan meant that Christianity was a true Germanic religion. And it went, it went so far as to suggest that paganism and Christianity were the same thing. And that basically you could replace the Holy Trinity with Voltan and Dona and whoever. <laughs> and it's, you have these atrocious religious ideas that are happening among the Nazis. So Yes, not every Nazi was a pagan, right? And there was a lot of like religious differences and, and you know, debate within the group. But it's important to note, and it cannot be forgotten, that a lot of pagan ideas started with the Nazis, particularly among three individuals. So um, in 1934, Hitler appointed, um, actually before that, let me say that there were basically three top Nazi pagans, if you will, um, in terms of people who influenced the uh, the Nazi position on paganism. Um, Alfred Rosenberg, Heinrich Himmler, and Martin Bormann. So these three individuals basically paved the way. Um, in 1934, Hitler appointed Alfred Rosenberg, who was an outspoken pagan. He appointed him as the uh, um, official Nazi ideologist, meaning that he was basically the individual who was who was in charge of like forming Nazi ideas. In 1933, Rosenberg formulated a 30-point program for the National Reich Church, which included that the NRC would have executive right and control over all, all churches, that the NRC would um, would exterminate foreign quote christian faith that um and the imported christianity and that nrc uh demand the secession of bible publishing and dissemination and the nrc demanded that all our altars will be cleared of crucifixes bibles and saint idols and that the nrc demanded that all altars must only have mein Kampf and a sword on the altar so i when I hear this type of information, the part that is like so particularly alarming to me is that again, we a lot of people have conflated the idea that a, a religion can be more can be moral, or that morality is is synonymous with religion or spirituality. And unfortunately, it, it, it's just simply not because to say that Christianity is a summation of all the world's evils. Explain this to me, then. Explain to me why you have Nazis who are literally saying that we need to get rid of this imported Christianity and we need to bring back in the true Germanic faith, and they use this as a justification to to, to enact a Holocaust. Explain that then to me. Why pagans were capable of such evil if if evil only exists amongst Christians? And I think that this is the thing that people need to be crucially aware of when we're talking about this notion about Easter, because this, this goes even further, um, where you have um, the Nazi resurgence of holidays. Okay, so the Nazis um, had a couple of 
Christmases and they wanted to call them Yule or a Yule Fest. Okay, so on the second Yule Fest, um, an individual who was invited was, I don't have his first name, Volshagen. Um, Volshagen was a prominent participant of the second Nazi Christmas and the festival happened in the year 1922. Volshagen was an opponent of Christianity and he was an advocate of the pagan Germanic faith, quote unquote. Um, and he described the two important festivals as uh, Yule Fest, i.e. Christmas, and Osterfest, i.e. Easter. He said that Osterfest represented the high, quote, highest festival of joy about the rebirth of light out of the long winter night. And he went on to say that he supported Easter as a pagan celebration dedicated to Ostara, quote, goddess of youth and, and the first spring. So although Aidan Kelly was the first individual who labeled spring equinox as Ostara, the idea that Ostara is associated with Easter is very much an idea that existed amongst top-level Nazi people. Mm -hmm. And I think that people assume, again, wrongfully so, that 21st century pagan reconstructionism has existed in an insulated bubble, just as many people think that cultures exist in an insulated bubble. And that cannot be farther from the truth. In reality, the 21st century Germanic reconstructionism is firmly rooted and the reconstruction that happened in the 19th century and the people who were doing that work were Nazis. What you see today, it is not unlikely and it is not unfathomable that we are perpetuating ideas that were uh, that were incepted by the Nazis. For example, a lot of the runic definitions, like for the younger Futhark runes, you know, pagans love runes. It's and and not that not that runes are explicitly evil. But there was another, um, there was another um, Nazi. I don't think he ever technically joined the party, but let's just call it what it is. A spade's a spade. He was a Nazi, right? And his name was Guido von Liszt. Guido von Liszt and Liebefels joined um, together and they created a religion called Ariosophy. And Guido von Liszt is responsible for creating multiple runic definitions that the Nazis would then go on to use. So for example, the Sovilo rune, which is the rune for the sun, it literally just meant sun. It's like, that's all it meant. But Guido von Liszt, um, Guido von Liszt said that no, the symbol actually means victory. If you look up right now, if you go to Google and you look up Sovilo definition, I promise you that the first at least three results are going to say that that rune means victory. That, they got that definition from the Nazis and it's still being perpetuated today. So I ask you, what is, how, how likely or unlikely then do you find it that Nazis would also have have in, have wormed their way into our thought on other topics as well. If the if the if we have evidence of their ideas that of runes being still perpetuated today, is it so impossible that their ideas about Ostara are also not being perpetuated? I agree. And I think that it's also <laughs> important to understand that it doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't no. have to be conscious because no. a lot of it is very much unconscious thought because I think people are going to ask, well, do you think Aiden Kelly knew what he was doing when he named it? No. Mm-hmm. But I think that it comes from a much deeper culture. And mm-hmm. this is where we get to our larger discussion of the myth of pagan purity. We're finally yes. to that section. Yes. Like we said at the beginning of the section on Christian eggs, the notion that eggs must have been stolen from pagan tradition relies on stereotypes, misconceptions, and misinformation 
A lot of this discussion around Mustaqa relies on these various, very same stereotypes, assumptions, and misinformation. We have cultural concepts that we want to uphold. We have, uh, we feel very strongly that we're they that they're logical, but right. without any evidence. It's about a feeling that we have, right? Because they play into the narrative that we hold dear. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for example. We believe that Christianity is bad, dreary, dull, without any sort of natural, earthy symbolism. Right. We know that Christianity has forcibly converted people, and specifically pagans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we believe that pagans are a natural people connected with the earth and the seasons. And therefore, we feel it's logical that Christians must have stolen the, the, the symbolism of eggs from pagans, despite the fact that there is no evidence that this is true. And mounds of evidence as to why eggs are important to Christianity otherwise, right? So it's all about this feeling, and it relies on a mo- on this fallacy of this pure Christian people. Uh, right. There was no homogenous pagan people. No, no. There is no homogenous group no. called the pagans. There is no homogenous no. pagan tradition. And, and nor was there a homogenous practice known as Wicca that existed prior to, like, the 1950s. There is no homogenous witchcraft practice. There no. never was a homogenous witchcraft no. practice. There never is a homogenous witchcraft practice. No. Witchcraft no. today, witchcraft yesterday, witchcraft tomorrow, never mm-hmm. has, never will be homogenous. Right. right. And, again, it's really important to know that oftentimes this romanticized notion of a pure untouched pagan people Mm -hmm. relies on heavily racist notions yes yes ones who wanted to ones created by people who wanted to idealize pagans Mm -hmm. as a pure untouched perfect people and i mean literally again uh as hearth said nazis often saw two variations of christianity christianity as the uh insipid horrific creation of jews so like mm-hmm. a jewish construct that was right right touched by sem- semitic filthy hands right as they said <laughs> uh, so it's a jewish construct mm-hmm. or it's a pagan construct and so in the right. first version the idea of these pagan peoples is to mean that they are untouched by anything that would be, could be tainted by Jews mm-hmm. or any sort of person of color, right. anyone who isn't of this horrific, quote unquote, right. Aryan, you know, concept. Right. right. And, and even when we have no evidence for it, we're far likely, far more likely to believe a myth about these supposed perfect pagans mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. fits into this narrative that yes. is still existing today because right. it's been perpetuated through right. Nazi ideology, through romanticism, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Wicca, and right. it comes at the expense of people who exist today. And I, I, I think that it really does drive back to the sentiment where it's like what we're doing is we're projecting our personal traumas onto a group of people and we're basically uh projecting our personal opinions about the ideas of morality and uh purity onto groups of people because for us like in 2023 there absolutely are people who identify as pagan who have immense amounts of christian trauma and i and that should never be invalidated but what's happening and what i would encourage somebody in that position to do is to not then project their traumas onto an assumption that every every pagan who's ever lived is moral <laughs> history doesn't support that idea we have there was a pagan ruled rome at some point and so before um rome had officially converted to christianity there th- that's where so many saints 
sainthood comes from like saint agatha she was sainted because she was a christian martyr because they believe that they I'll also take- say hey jews do we do know a little something about pagan oppression right right just, just saying a little something anti-semitism did not begin and end with christians no god no so pagans were not perfect people and then beyond i mean i mean for crying out loud beyond what they've done what the persecution of christians beyond the persecution of jewish people like pagans literally like they killed people like they like they sacrificed women and children like what do you well again it comes to this romanticism idea it's it's this romantic idea this it's again it's the same idea of when people are are like oh the true witches they just danced under the moon and gathered herbs like we all have these romantic ideas of like cottage poor living people are like i want to live on a farm you don't want to be you you have to touch you want to be putting manure into a garden bed at 4 a.m right we have a romantic idea of what it was and (laughs) and it's important to note that pop culture very much makes it so hard to deconstruct these notions. Oh my gosh, notions. yeah. And I like want to be Sabrina, very clear. I want to be clear. This isn't to shame people, right? Mm-mm. No, Because not at all. you are primed for this. You are primed right. and prepped for it. Right. So to believe it is to follow the natural path. To mm-hmm. not believe it, to actively seek out citations, is right. to actually divert from this path. Because right. if you look to most of our popular media i mean look at neil gaiman's american mm. gods right oh, when you're there's so much of pop culture really pushes us towards these false narratives right and if we look at a lot of these you know tv shows about ancient pagans they're so highly inaccurate but what do people right. have access to it's only when right. you are presented with evidence and choose to turn your back on it mm-hmm. is there a problem right correct exactly Which, exactly you know, and that's and I and I think that yeah, exactly, and just like extend that sympathy to people who are like, oh my god, I I didn't know. Well, like, yeah, a lot of people. No don't. one expects you to know. No, you exactly. No one sh- expects you. And that's the thing, right now, what you have to decide is: do you would you, you know, what is this Dan McKellen? Um, his slogan that I appreciate is like data over dogma, right? I feel like that's a great little slogan mm-hmm. that we all can adopt. It's like, are you making this decision rooted in your emotional dogma? Or are you making this decision because you've been presented with factual evidence that base- essentially proves and what updated truth- evidence? That's Correct. the other thing. Updated evidence, exactly. And that's what like, we're going to get to now. Because evidence is not somebody's like woo-woo nonsense from romanticism in the 18th, 19th, whatever century. Because oh, I really like, I sure do like flowers. I sure like spring. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a goddess that you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not factual. Well, let's talk a little bit further about the quote, the evidence that's sort of presented. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about Ostaga, we talk about the goddess, the figure, right? Right. She's often said to be like a shadowy figure, right? Well, first right. of all, Ostaga, even the name of it is fairly inaccurate because we don't even, mm-hmm. that's a name given by Jakob Grimm. Osta right. is the one we really have. But she is loosely connected by mm-hmm. etymological roots to the mm-hmm. matroni austrihini sure those names on those idols always get to me they are so right difficult. so according to philip a shaw in his text pagan goddesses in the early germanic world was to mm-hmm. and the cult of matrons thank you for sending me that one by the way uh, oh, yeah. as uh, gutenbrunner uh, recognized the first element of the name austrihini can be connected etymologically with the name mm-hmm. Uster, with an mm-hmm. element used 
informing Germanic personal names, connections that will be dis- discussed in details below, which I didn't actually include, but you should absolutely read this text. I highly recommend it. <laughs> on the other hand, uh, it argues that the inscriptions on the Osrene provide comparative, important comparative evidence for Osta, but argues that they might be evidence of either the same deity or for deities mm-hmm. whose cults developed independently. Mm-hmm. The possibility of an etymological connection between the names Osta and Austrehne, differently spelled, by the way, um, <laughs> has also led to an, to an argument between by Kurt Otter, an contemporary on a contemporary pagan website, that there was indeed a pagan deity named uh, Osta Austro, connected with spring and worshipped across England and parts of the continent. Essentially, Otter sees that the Austrehne are bolstering the claims of Grimm and Helm, and the implication of his piece that these matrons are basically figures identical with or derived from the goddess Osta or Austria. Uh, this does not seem entirely satisfactory. In order to unpick the various problems presented by Osta, we need to consider not only the exact nature of the deities termed, uh, the but also the linguistic evidence provided by the Germanic terms for Easter and related words. So essentially, this mm-hmm. is a matron, a matron, uh, matronic deities, there right. three of them, and people are saying it's etymologically related to Osta, so this is proof of her. Right. No. Which... <laughs> perfect chick chuck chuck really quick done um i just wanted to bring it up because it's one of the things that people yeah. bring up as a sort of gotcha about it which is also right. again not actually relevant to the conversation about whether no. easter was stolen from Mostar or not. well yeah because it's it. like there's there's separate arguments right like there certainly can be an argument and a debate about if ostara was actually a, a thing because apparently be it had a reputation of of exaggerating albeit making things right. up right people are like well why would he make it up he was a christian why would he make him a pagan to 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 gain academic status to be seen as this like ren- like it's like being a journalist like he broke the case he broke the case he on did it. easter good for b and those beady little eyes he saw right through him like you know what i mean i'm <laughs> sorry um it's just it's it's silly is what it is it's silly but anyways there's two arguments and that's one and then the other argument which is the primary focus obviously of the conversation which is did easter come from osada no resoundingly no absolutely not but i do want to bring it up um because i think it's one of those connected arguments that just well it's it's also again we're we're basing basing it loosely on uh uh on etymology which is uh just okay yeah, etymology is certainly worthwhile looking into, but it's not the, you know, closed case, we're done, you know. It's important to note, though, etymology is not words sound like the other words. That's not what <laughs> etymology is. No. It's God. really important that you know, people know that. That, um, yeah, that's and something, that's right? Because this next section comes in. <laughs> now, have you ever seen the meme that says Easter was stolen from Ishtar? Because I, this is one of my yeah. favorite myths. This is one of my favorite myths to Every see. Every year. Chances are you've seen a really specific meme, and it says, this is Ishtar, pronounced Easter. Easter was originally the celebration of Ishtar, the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility and sex. Her symbols, like the egg and bunny, were and still are <laughs> fertility and sex symbols. Or did you actually think eggs and bunnies, bunnies had anything to do with the resurrection? After, Constant- <laughs> after Constantine decided to Christianize the empire, Easter was changed to represent Jesus. But at its roots, mm-hmm. Easter, which is how you pronounce Easter, Ishtar, but okay, is about celebrating sex and fertility. No, it's no. Okay, that was baffling. 
Um, I... Now, if you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if that's just anti-Catholic propaganda that someone made into a Facebook meme, <laughs> you would be correct. You would be correct. Now, the specific oh, yeah. meme that we've probably seen features the Bernie relief, which, mm. okay. Um, and the, that act meme dates back to 2013, but the claim that Easter is stolen from Ishtar, which is pronounced Ishtar, not Easter. Mm. There's no pronunciation of it, Easter, um, is far older anti-Catholic propaganda. It can be traced yeah. back to Rev. Alexander Hislop of the Free Church of Scotland in the mid-1800s. So he was born in 1807, and he was widely known for his criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church, which is totally fine. Criticize the church. Mm -hmm. However, here's the mm -hmm. problem. He went a little further than that. As as much as, you know how mo you'll see modern day Protestants and evangelicals calling Catholic rights demonic? That's not, that's not new in any way. He went so many steps further. He had an 1853 pamphlet that was then published as a book in 1858. Uh, it was a later, and this book is called Two Babylons. And it, quote, traced the practices of the Roman Catholic Church to pagan practices originating in the in ancient Babylon in order to show that the church is the, quote, whore of Babylon, as prophesied <laughs> in Revelation 17. He makes the claim that Easter yeah. is stolen. For, uh, so he's essentially saying that the Catholic church is the whore of Babylon and all of their practices are actually pagan and he is going to prove it. You know what is he gonna prove so it? funny? Like, just a wish and a prayer, genuinely. I, d like, I, 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 I really do adore that you have like, there's the Christian umbrella, right? But like, sometimes I'm like, you know, there's just no possible way that you guys need to be under the same umbrella. Please like break this up. So Hislop really had so many ideas. To quote chapter three, section two, he writes, then look at Easter. What means the term Easter itself? It is not a Christian name. It bears its Chaldean origin on its very forehead. Easter is nothing else than Astarte, one of the titles of Beltis. The queen of heaven, whose name, as pronounced by the people Nineveh, was e evidently identical with what is now is common in this country. The name, as found by Laird on the Assyrian monuments, is Ishtar. So, <laughs> again, <sighs> hopes and a prayer, really. He's saying that Easter is actually Ishtar, right. and that's it. Um, it's so funny because it's like, what is it? is it, the Jehovah's Witness, who are basically like, oh well all these other all these holidays are pagan and it's so funny because it's, it, it's just like hey, the call you know is coming from inside the house you know what i'm saying like so to quote church historian and emeritus professor of history at massey university in auckland peter lynham when speaking with aap fact check to quote had an absolutely incredible quote regarding hislop and his thought process to quote hislop's tendency was to think if it sounds the same it must be connected that was the logic he used <laughs> it's a wonderful book because it's full of imagination and nonsense it's fantastic but utterly misconstrued and that is the same logic that people use today oh 100 the, the logic has stayed and it's fantastic it's but utterly misconstrued <laughs> yeah um we can easily debunk the meme in a few seconds because it's complete yeah. garbage. Um, but a historian's gone ahead and simply used a red font and just crossed things out. The best version of uh, So Ishtar, it's, it's not accurate information about Ishtar. It's not accurate <sighs> information at all. Um, the idea, they're like, oh, you didn't think it was about Jesus. Well, it, we, we, already, we already told you it is, so move on. <laughs> um, now, the real tragedy and irony to me is that 
people are parroting Christian anti-Catholic propaganda Mm -hmm. while thinking they are reclaiming something from Christianity. (laughs) Oh, I think about that all the time. Or it's just like, you're you're what? Where did you hear that? (laughs) It's so funny to me because it's just like, no, it's literally like, it's like you consulted a Jehovah's Witness, and the Jehovah's Witness was like, "Yeah, Christ- Christmas is pagan. Don't you know that?" And you're like, "Yeah, you know what? You're right." And then totally you become pagan, yep. and you're like, "This is a pagan holiday. The Christians stole it from me." No, they did not. And it's so in this. And again, that this is like what really just grinds me up about the whole thing, where it's just like, there you're you're taking away from valid arguments when you say this nonsense because there are so many arguments that you could make about the ways in which christianity has just ravished the world but instead what you're doing is you're making things up because you feel like you've been personally slighted you weren't there go talk go back in time get in the get in the tardis and go talk to the council of nicaea you know what i'm saying a doctor who reference it on is, my podcast I did i went there i love it i love it <laughs> well i mean that's that also brings us to our next section which is why do these myths persist right why do we keep having right. it because we're not in the 1800s anymore we have the internet we right. have so much information yeah. at our fingertips right. and ever i i get sent so many new tiktoks new infographics being made every, every year single of year. people promoting more and more information and again what citations do they have? They have no citations ever. None. Uh, Jason Mankey, who is a Gardnerian Wiccan, has a theory on why this persists. And I cite him for a specific reason, and I mentioned it earlier. I'm often accused of being biased in favor of Christianity when mm-hmm. I talk about this, which it's is so strange and an interesting so departure ridiculous. because I'm frequently accused of being anti-Christian because it's I so often ridiculous. talk about anti-Christian, I'm sorry, ex- uh, Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, Christian anti-Semitism is a huge problem. And that's one of the reasons that I call this out because Easter is a huge time of Christian anti-Semitism. Right, but, right, right. And the reason I'm citing a Wiccan scholar, uh, an author here, is because it's mm-hmm. not just, oh, a meddling Jew getting involved in something she has right. no business in. Right, Um Because it's someone who's, of course, involved in this. And Jason mm-hmm. Mankey is a known colleague of Aidan Kelly, who again right. named the holiday. So to quote, Schadenfreude is one of my absolute favorite words and means mm-hmm. enjoyment obtained from the trouble of others. Memes like Ishtar's pronounced Easter are often created by atheists and sometimes mm-hmm. pagans trying to mock Christians for their beliefs and are a great example of attempt in Schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. The atheist train of thought uh, in such cases is if Easter is named after Ishtar, Easter is fake because it was based on a pagan thing, which is also fake. Mm-hmm. No one is giving ancient pagans credit for inventing a Christian holiday to be nice to us or our ancestors. They're doing it to mock Christianity. Yes. And I think a lot of this comes from, again, tra- like you've been mentioning this whole time, trauma with Christianity. <laughs> yeah. And it comes from, I think, this this interesting ecosystem of mm-hmm. Christian trauma and white supremacy and not unlearning right. these Christian perspectives and and it. And, and, your your christian trauma you are still acting in line and in accordance with christianity when you Mm -hmm. when you attempt to homogenize the world you are you are ignoring you are ignoring the diversity 
of local regional cultures, which is something that arguably Christians do in colonization. So it's like when you do this, you are literally perpetuating <clears throat> Christian hierarchy. Like, and that's that's the thing. Again, we have got to stop conflating spirituality and religion and morality to assume that you are now above reproach just suddenly because you have abandoned Christianity. There are plenty of 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 asshole atheists, of asshole pagans, like let's just be honest. Like do we need a I'm not going we just talked about everything that the Nazis did. I mean, like seriously? It just it boggles the mind. Boggles the mind. I'm sorry for saying a bad word on your podcast. That's totally fine. Don't worry. Um, uh, Anyways. So how would you celebrate Ostaga or Easter? I I wouldn't. Um, (laughs) So the, the, the thing about, here's the thing. While I sort of understand the sentiment of like things like the wheel of the year, I think people love, who doesn't love, love a good holiday, right? I love a good holiday. I love the whole hubbub about the whole thing. But the thing about holidays is that they're different and that the thing with the wheel of the year is that they're making things up and and they're sort of glossing over these very real rich cultural traditions so like for example in um in germany um and it varies region to region and what it's called and what it is done but there's a general sentiment that's basically called the burning of death or the burning of winter um todesregen um and so it's I'm trying to remember the other names for it. Anyways, but Todesregen is one of the is one of the names. Um, and one of the things that you do is you take an effigy. Usually, it's made of like some of the old crops from the following year. Uh, it could be wheat or whatever. And then you make an effigy, and it's supposed to invoke basically the spirit of death or the spirit of winter. And in these pre-Christian regions, it was often a female spirit, um, likely known as Mara in the Slavic regions um arguably uh, there could be a connection with holda because of the presence in various um parts of germany and then you burn the effigy because you're burning away the spirit of winter and you are welcoming in the spirit of spring and rebirth and light and so this is something that was likely done on spring equinox um as many people like to call uh, ostara but now in um, I believe in the syncretized version, the holiday is actually on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Latare? Can't remember how that's pronounced. But point being, um, that would be what I celebrate. Um, because Ostara is not a holiday that's relevant to me or my practice because it's not a cultural holiday. It's made up, you know, it's from 1970. And I want to impress upon the the thing that not everything has to be historical to be valid and tr- and, and worthwhile in a, in a person's craft, right? Like you can make up a holiday that's something that you and your, let's just say you and your mom have something that you've done every year. Like you go out to a movie or whatever. So that's kind of a holiday, right? Like you have this little tradition and, and that's beautiful. That's individual to you. And you can and celebrate the spring equinox. Well, yeah, absolutely. Without calling it Ostara. Like I had, yeah, when absolutely. I made the post, people were like, well, how dare you try and take this away from pagans? No one's trying to At take no anything away point in my post did I ever try and take anything away from, by the way, yes. uh, you peer reviewed the post and I did. that was one of the things that people kept being like, Oh, how dare you try and take this from pagans who are just trying to find an alternative to Christianity? Yeah. Why do you think that you are entitled to misinformation? Correct. Correct. At the detriment of others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And the thing for for your benefit. And again, no one is stopping you from celebrating Ostara. If you want to go out and dance in the fields, wear protection from ticks and have fun. No one's stopping you at all. No, do whatever you you want, really. You know, wear a flower crown. And if you want to even Mm -hmm. go for the full liturgy as created Mm -hmm. by Aidan Kelly, Mm -hmm. absolutely no one is trying to stop you. The only thing that I'm trying to impress is that it isn't an ancient pagan holiday and promoting misinformation is bad. Promoting misinformation, even when it serves your rhetoric, is harmful. Right. Right. That's it. That's it. That's that's the only thing that I'm trying to do. Right. And again, I think it is also a little bit nefarious that mm -hmm. a lot of the messaging that people promoted in my comments was, well, you're Jewish, so you're actually the problem. Okay. What a weird thing to say to me. Dial that back and figure out why you just said that, like, seriously. And see, this is, and this is the thing, right? Because, like, when it comes to, when it comes to Ostara, the thing that I find so difficult to me, and and I'm speaking from the, from the position of as as a German folk practitioner, right? Because I firmly believe I'm, 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 I'm engaging in the folk craft of German people and the German people that identity has only been in existence since basically 800 CE with the founding of the kingdom of Germany. So, but I'm responsible for the things that have been perpetuated and encouraged by the German folk. I'm, I'm, because that is my, that, that's where the craft comes from. It comes from the folk. And I simply cannot look at this and deny what the Nazis did in encouraging this idea and perpetuation that Ostara is is equated with the spring equinox that she is equated with easter and that these horrible jewish people have taken this from us like that is something that the germans perpetuated and even if even if it wasn't a person perpetuating it who was a nazi it's like if you sat by and you were complicit in this you may as well have been right and the thing like you said earlier anti-semitism is in no way shape or form new like it's been around since basically I mean, it's, it's since at least the founding of the of the common era. I mean, so it's like it's been around as long as Jews have been around. But yeah, I, honestly, I didn't want to say it, but no. I it's okay. I we can it's say kinda... it. Anti-Semitism is known as the world's oldest hatred for a reason. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And it and it's like I, I just can't sit by and and want to sit here and say, oh well, I want to you know I want to have a pagan Easter. Because to me, that carries so much baggage that I cannot ignore. It would just seem obtuse and insensitive for me to try and do this. When I have my own rich cultural holidays, like I have Todesregen, I, I, I I'm going to go out and kill death. That's metal as hell. That's what a so great cool. thing to do. What a very right? exciting holiday. I get to kill winter and death? We were, we've been recording for almost three hours, so I want to be conscious oh of your time. Oh my gosh. But also, oh. what are your final thoughts? If anything else you want to add, I want to make sure we get everything oh, in this because this is going to be an ever-living document oh, yeah. uh, on the internet. I can't of... wait. I can't wait. Finally, Everybody's... finally, I feel like I have like a good reference, right, where people are going to say this and I, I'm going to be ready for it. I'm going to be sitting, I'm going to be itching for it. As like, soon hey, as... you want to learn? I have three hours. As soon as St. Patrick's Day is over and people, you know, and people move on from that nonsense to the next one, I'm ready. I'm going to have this, oh. the source and be like, here's a podcast. Here's this online article. Just stop it. Just, hey, look out. Yeah. Um, 
anything oh, else you want to add? I just want to, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person where I like to, cause I, my mind goes everywhere. Right. And I'm sure that people listening to this can pick up on that. But so I'm somebody who likes to summarize things. So if I had to say anything, it would just be the summary again, where it's just like, I would, I would encourage you, anybody listening, when I say you, I keep referring to the person who we're talking to. And I understand. Don't headphones. Worry. Um, but I would just encourage whoever is listening to just, just like assess your desire right like what 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 is your want is it is it ostara is it to have this holiday that's been used by nazis to perpetuate anti-semitism by wiccans to perpetuate the homogenization of rich cultures and erase those like whether it be a conscious or an unconscious thing that's that's the result right like like impact over intent you know what i mean so it's like what is the want i suppose like are you wanting to identify with a with an old tradition that feels relevant to you? Then research the spring traditions that your family may have participated in. And that can be uh, your pre-Christian ancestors, albeit I would argue that those are more of like the cult of the dead versus like your ancestors. Because we're talking about like, gosh, that's like thousands of people now because talk about a family tree that far back. But or make up your own or you know research a culture that even if it's just from a little bit of where your family is from you know that you're like wow that's beautiful like if you have any german heritage my goodness you're welcome to come celebrate Todesregen. like that's it's cool it's fun like i just i think that assessing motivations here is really important because i think that if we're honest i think that a lot of the motivations surrounding this are twofold i think frankly it's anti-semitism and I think that it's partnered into this, like, um, this conflation where people are, are mistakenly saying that Christianity and Judaism are the same thing, and that you have this uh, conflation or this partnership between anti-Christianity and anti-Judaism. And I think that that's very much a motivation for a lot of people. And I would, and I think that the other motivation is that people want to have something that feels like it. People are wanting to express their frustrations with the christian church because they have christian trauma and i absolutely get that i have it too i think we all have it i think anybody who's grown up in a western christian world is going to have some of it you don't even have to have been raised christian to have some elements of it my gosh and i think that that's important to assess because if we're making an emotionally based decision and we're so rooting ourselves and we're so willing to root ourselves in misinformation to root ourselves in lack of fact and if we're willing to root ourselves in this in these in this fallacy because we're angry then i think that that says a lot and i think that that's something that an individual needs to explore and assess because if if it's more important to you to re reinvigorate this false notion because of a personal upset then I think that we need to really think about how much harm that can do to a society and to an individual. And I think that's where we start. It's figuring out what's the motivation. Why are we so intent on clinging to Ostara and, and this idea of, of it being, of, of Easter being stolen from pagans? Like figure out why you feel so intently about that and then go from there. Because I think that you're going to be a little unhappy or frustrated at what you find in terms of that sense of motivation. Because that's not a healthy way of being if it's from a place of trauma. 
right? Heal it. I think, I think that's such a wonderful way to put it. Thank you so much. Oh, I gosh, hope yeah. We managed to get everything in this discussion. I think we um, did. I think we did. I, I, God, I hope so. Let's get on to right. sources. Uh, we have Modern Pagan Festivals, A Study in the Nature of Tradition <clears throat> by Ronald Hutton. Uh, we have Pagan Goddesses in the Early Germanic War, Osta, Rita, and the Cult of Matron by Philip Shaw. We have the Patheos blog by Aidan Kelly. We have Sitting Between Worlds, A Brief History of Osnara. We have Patheos, uh, uh, I Believe We Believe Untrue Things by uh, Jason Mankey. We have DPpedia's Ostara Magazine. And then we have the uh, Ostara PDF. We have AAP Fact Check. No, uh, no Easter wasn't named after the Mesopotamian goddess. Um, we have the date of Easter PDF, uh, which which where we cited uh, cited the uh, Council of Nicaea. We have Venetian <laughs> Newalls and Egg at Easter, a folklore study. We have Beads, a reckoning of time. We have Jakob Grimm, Teutonic mythology. We have Wartsong, Wegweiser, zu Deutsch und Galubern, and that's from JSTOR. Uh, remember, you can find a hearth witch on Instagram, a.hearth.witch. You can find them on TikTok at a hearth witch. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on oh, Patreon. Yeah. I highly recommend the Patreon if you are looking to learn about Germanic mythology. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, gosh. Anytime. It's been such a pleasure. Anytime. I'm this was so super glad. fun. This is super fun. I'm I'm thrilled to be able to hang out with you. I'm thrilled to be able to, to dissect this misinformation. And what a great way to spend a day. If there are any topics you'd like to see the two of us cover, feel free to let oh, us yeah. know. I'd be happy be to fun. have you on again. All oh, right, heck on yeah. On that note, I will see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.